optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen the perfect time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably athletic greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types across all different industries and areas of expertise. In this episode, we have Jason Freed on Twitter, at Jason Freed, F-R-I-E-D, Basecamp.com. He is the co-founder and CEO of Basecamp, previously known as 37 Signals, a Chicago-based software firm. The company's flagship product, Basecamp, which I've used for many, many years, is a project management and team communication application trusted by millions. He is also the co-author of Getting Real, subtitle, The Smarter, Faster, Easier Way to Build a Successful Web Application, which is available for free at gettingreal.37signals.com. He is also the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Rework, and Remote, subtitle, Office Not Required. There's also a new book coming soon, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And you can actually thread those together to tell a lot of this story. Jason writes a regular column for Inc. Magazine and is a frequent contributor to Basecamp's popular blog, Popular is an Understatement, Signal versus Noise, which offers, quote, strong opinions and shared thoughts on design, business, and tech, end quote. Jason, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, Tim. And we have we have traded so many email over the years, and uh, certainly met on uh, on a handful of occasions. And you have to be one of the most requested guests for this podcast. So I'm thrilled that you were able and willing to make the time. So many well, thank thanks. you to everybody who wanted to hear me. I don't know why, but it's, it's great to hear that I'm wanted. <laughs> well, I think part of why people like to hear from you, and maybe it's a love-hate thing, but I think that what you said to me before we started is indicative. So one was, in response to what I always say to guests, and that is you have final cut. So it's better to kind of go a little over the edge and we can pair it back later. And you said, actually, I don't want that much control. <laughs> Whatever I say should go out into the world. <laughs> In effect, uh, is what you said. And, and you are known for being very raw and contrarian, uh, which, which I think has great appeal to a lot of people, particularly in uh, the current climate uh, that we don't need to describe for everybody to understand. And I'll start, given that, with a quote from Jeff Bezos, the trillionaire in the making behind Amazon. Quote, Jason is immune to dogma and has much to teach. In 37 Signals, he has built an elegant company with elegant products based on the idea that less is more. Now, of course, this is before we went from 37 Signals to Basecamp, but I'd, I'd love to talk about this this immune to dogma component, and we could certainly talk about less is more. Jeff ended up investing in your company, which is a whole separate story that we've we've covered in some respects with the conversation I had with uh, your your partner in crime, DHH, separately. So we won't dig into that. But what I'm really curious to know is this immune to dogma ability to question assumptions. How much of that is an innate skill versus an acquired skill? Um, I guess it's hard for me to say from where I sit, but I think a big part of it is that I don't really pay attention to a lot of things, actually. So um, <clears throat> maybe I have different points of view because I haven't heard the other ones, or I, I have different points of view because I haven't let uh, you know, society's norms and the general point of view get into my head. So I have to come up with my own ideas. I've always sort of, I pay attention to some degree, but I'm, I'm pretty oblivious to a lot of things intentionally because I, I don't want to be influenced that much. And it's one of the reasons why I don't read industry news. I re read very little news in general, but I definitely don't read industry news. I don't want to know what everyone else is doing. Um, I find it's very easy to end up following and being like everybody else when you're constantly hearing what everyone else has on their mind. It's very hard then to fight against uh, that. So by not filling my mind with other people's ideas, I have nowhere to go but to follow my own. And I think that perhaps that's why um, I'm immune to, to dogmas. I just don't even pay attention to it. You just don't have as much exposure. Yeah. On, and and on that's intentional. Level. Yeah. What are, what are some of the parameters or rules for yourself structures, systems, anything that you've put in place to find that sweet spot of deliberate, selective ignorance, so to speak? Yeah. Uh, um, a lot of it is just kind of going with the flow and not having, I don't have a lot of structure. For example, um, I, I don't have routines. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't have any goals. I've never had any goals. Goals are not something that I, I pay attention to. Um, 
I just sort of do uh, what I feel like is the right thing to do in any given situation. And I don't I don't look long term at things other than I want to, for example, be in business over the long term. I'd like to live over the long term. I'd like to be nice and getting better over the long term. But I don't have goalposts along the way. Um, so because of that and because I don't have much of a, of a routine, I sort of just take it as it comes. And uh, I think that also perhaps allows me to sidestep a lot of the ways you're supposed to do things. You know, and because I don't plan and because I don't think too far ahead on any individual one thing, um, I, I, I just able to sort of go where I need to when I need to. Uh, and I know that's it's it's funny because I'll talk to a lot of people about this uh, and people are, come on, you must have some goals like, you know, this or that. And I really, really don't have any. I can't remember ever having one. I I just like do the best I can in any given situation. And that's the best I can do. And however that ends up playing itself out over time is how it ends up playing itself out over time. I, I don't want to measure up. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, um, gosh, I forget now who it is. Um, maybe it's Mark Twain, but you know, he's probably said everything or everything's attributed to him, but, um, <laughs> could, it could have been, uh, it could have been Abe Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Or Einstein, one of them. Right. Um, uh, uh, basically comparison is the death of joy. And, uh, I love that quote because uh, it, it comes down to people, it comes down to situations, and it also comes down to goals and setting goals. For me, um, I don't want to compare myself to an idea I had two years prior, you know, of where I wanted to be. I don't know where I'm going to want to be in two years. So to set a goal that's long term, in some cases, you're actually setting it for you know who you are when you set it versus who you are when you're going to get there. And that's something that a friend of mine told me once, and I thought a guy named Jim Kudal, who I thought was just—it's a wonderful quote. I don't know if it's his or someone else's, but it really rang true. And so that's kind of how I how I go about the world. Well, let's let's look at that in a real world example because this is this is something that, as I'm sure you've experienced, and as you noted, people react to with a certain level of disbelief, right? You have a, a profitable company, 17 out of 17 years, or now what I read may be out of date, but <laughs> however many years out of however many years. Yeah. And uh, you have an organization. Uh, you are, are successful, certainly, by almost any objective measure. What did the last week look like? We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, so we're coming up to the tail end of what most people would consider a business week. Uh and if you don't have goals, you must have some means of making better decisions versus shitty decisions. Uh, so could you maybe walk us through what this week has looked like for you, how you've spent your time, which yeah, I know is very broad, but we, perhaps sure. you can use that as a launching point. Yeah, this week is a little tricky because I had some personal stuff I had to deal with in the beginning of the week. So we'll take like last the week before or something like that. Perfect. Um, um, so, you know, at Basecamp, we work in um, what we call six-week cycles. So we are we don't work on anything. Okay, I'm generalizing, but for the most part, we don't work on anything that takes longer than six weeks to do. So um, our goals technically are to deliver something great within six weeks, whatever we're building. Um, as a, as an organization, that's sort of where our goals are. But our I don't have personal goals. Like I don't have a goal. Like if we I, we don't set personal goals. We don't set company-wide goals in terms of uh, like uh, this feature will be successful if or, uh, you know, it, it, if it brings in this amount of money, it'll be worth it or anything like that. Um, our, our goal, if you do want to use the word, is just to do the best job we can. 
So last week I, w- I met with a, a couple teams who were doing some projects and kind of reviewed them with them and tried to help them through some problems, work through some ideas. We're just finalizing some some um, some stuff on our book. So I'm working on the book that we're, we're finishing now. Our manuscript is due in a couple of weeks. So I did some of that. Um, but, but really it's all about what we're actually doing at the moment versus sort of the big picture as to why we're doing it other than we just want to do a good job. We have an idea. We've set out, set out some work we're going to do over the next six weeks and just helping people get there and do the best we can and also make decisions and cut things and say, we can't do all these things we want to do. What, what's the important part of this? So I love trying to get to what's the most important part of something versus you know, we don't have, for example, we don't have any KPIs at Basecamp. We don't have key performance any, indicators. Yeah. I, I didn't even know what that meant, by the way, until recently, because I heard everyone talking about them. I'm like, do we have those? And I go, oh, no, we don't have those. So we don't <laughs> and have just, those. Just to pause for a second. So yeah. <laughs> for people who are like, what? TPS reports. So KPIs, yeah. K- KPIs are referred to very often in startup vernacular, particularly in the tech world, as key performance indicators, which refer to the few or handful of metrics that are prized and most valued within your company. And that that could be revenue per employee, it could be uh, monthly unique users, or any number of other things, week on week growth of X, who knows. So sorry to interrupt, but just for people who don't come from that world. uh, So so you don't have uh, KPIs don't have that. We don't have revenue growth number targets. We don't have, we don't have, tar- so, okay. So we don't have goals. We don't have targets. We don't have KPIs. We, we don't have, um, sort of those kinds of reasons for doing what we do every day. Uh, the reason we do what we do every day is because we enjoy doing it and we want to make what we're working on better. And we're making the thing that we're making for others. We're also making for ourselves. So we technically want to make our own tooling better because it helps us do a better job with, with what we do. So it really is this day to day or week to week or every six weeks sort of rolling thing where you, you, you set out some stuff you want to do. You do it the best you can. At the end of those six weeks, we take a week or two off from scheduled work and we do other things at work. We roam around, have new ideas, play with some stuff. And then we pick another set of projects to do over the next six weeks. And we just kind of go as we go and course correct as we go. And we just don't have any of these big, big picture things. So my weeks look like feedback. My weeks look, look like thinking. They look like writing. Sometimes it requires me to debate things internally with people, um, uh, you know, to, to, to lay out, uh, some, some reasons for why we're doing things. But my, my week is, is not, uh, pointed in any one direction other than what we're really doing right now. So it is very much a day-to-day sort of existence, um, which, which is why it's sort of an incompatible existence with goals, with long-term goals, you know, with, with, with figures and and numbers and stuff. I also, I don't want to be upset about expectations. So another thing I don't have are any, really any expectations. Um, I I would hate to, for example, let's say, let's say the company was, we were expected to grow 22% next year. I'm making up numbers here. Right. Uh, and we grew 21. Like that would be a reason at a lot of companies to be upset. That is a ridiculous reason to be upset. Like, <laughs> how would everyone be upset with that? But when you set out these numbers and these goalposts and these goals and, and, and these expectations and you don't hit them, then you're just then you're upset. And once you've actually either hit them or not hit them, then you come up with another set and you just keep moving these 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 moments of um, 
possible joy, but most likely disappointment in a lot of cases. And I just don't feel like setting those up for myself. So I just ignore the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, I've, I've, I have all of these various bits and pieces that I've gathered through research. And I suspect that I'm just going to get hung up on a couple of things I really want to explore. And that's <laughs> just going to be the way it goes. Let's go into it. All right. So there are many people listening who are familiar with Basecamp and the blog and so on and are saying, I would love to have a company or a product as successful as Basecamp, but I don't know how to go from where I am, which is goal-oriented, having KPIs, etc., to perhaps the other end of the spectrum, which is closer to Jason. So I suppose embedded into that is the is the question of should they even want to emulate that uh, but but secondly if someone said yes I've decided I want to move more in that direction what might be a step they could take or steps they could take to inch them a little bit closer to uh, where you are and, and a little further away from oh my god I wanted to hit 22 we, we hit 21 we're a failure right well first off I do want to make it really clear that this is simply what works for me in our organization so I am not suggesting this is the only way, the best way, whatever. This this works for us. So if if what works for you works for you, and you're very goal oriented and KPI driven, and you think you know you need to to the things you measure, the thing or whatever it is, I forget how that saying goes. Um, what you what you measure is what you move, or whatever. I don't know. What gets you know what measured gets managed. That's the one, right? So so if you're if you're like that, and and you think that things are great for you and things are working well for you please do not even consider changing, like keep doing that. I think though, if you're doing all of those things and you feel a sense of sort of a lack of fulfillment or you're maybe consistently disappointed or you're reaching for things that you can't seem to grab, um, I would suggest, you know, trying a little bit, trying some of the things I'm suggesting, which is pull back your expectations a bit. Um, just sort of try to set out to do the best you can versus uh, try to measure up with a number that you've made up. And that's the other thing that I, I think is important here is that any projection that you set out to, to hit is a guess. Like you're, you're, you, you personally are making, or someone at your organization or whatever is making a guess and they're picking a number and they're saying, this is where we think we should be because this is sort of what we did last year. And because of that, we want to do a little bit better this year. And but all this stuff is still just man-made. None of these things are are, are inherent in existence. They're all man-made things, these numbers, these goals, these figures. So if you can begin to strip that back and sort of recognize that that's the case and say, like, what if I tried to function without setting any of these, but I just did the best work I can anyway, because isn't that what I should be doing anyway, no matter what? So my suggestion would be, as with anything, um, I'm not a, a big fan of, of trying to massively change anything at once. So I think... Um, my suggestion would be like whatever the next project you have that, that you're working on, um, if you would normally set out some goalposts or set out some some figures to hit or whatever or measure this, just try not measuring one of those things. Just take, pick one little tiny thing that you can throw away and not worry about and see what happens. And you'll probably find that, that, that the sky isn't falling and the business isn't, cra isn't crashing and people aren't running aimlessly around not wondering what to, or wondering what to do, that actually, in fact – um, people will, if you, if you explain why you're doing it, because you want to make this better because simply you want to make it better and you think it could be better or whatever. And you lay that out that people will be motivated enough by that, 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 that the numbers and the figures don't necessarily 
they're not the things that are pulling you forward. What's pulling you forward, hopefully, is your intrinsic motivation and your and your desire to do a better job at what you're doing and, and, the, and the sort of appreciation of the craft and the respect of the work that you're doing and who you're doing it for and that that's kind of enough and that everything else is sort of a side effect of that. Um, so anyway, I'd say pick one little thing, throw it away, don't worry about it and see what happens. You'll probably find out that everything's just okay. And then maybe you'll have the courage to try it with another little thing that you are measuring that you don't really care so much about. And I know I'm, I'm well aware that this flies in the face of a lot of people's, um, worldview and, and maybe even yours. I know you're big into measuring things, especially health wise and whatnot. So again, I think it comes down to also most importantly, knowing who you are and what, what matters to you and not trying to be like somebody else. There's a lot of people trying to be like other people. And uh, I don't want anyone to try and be like me. You should be like yourself. And if there's 5% of what I'm saying makes sense to you, then maybe you can pull that in and make that part of you too. But I don't think you should be out there trying to be someone else because that's a bit of an artificial uh, situation. Well, you made it, uh, you've, you've mentioned directly and alluded to perhaps a, a few things I'd like to underscore just for folks listening the, the first is that when you when one reads a quote or hears a quote like what gets measured gets managed, uh, it can often be taken to mean that you should manage everything and therefore you should measure everything and that there is only upside in measuring. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's simply not the case. Uh, and for instance, whether it's the – I remember Andy Grove, I believe it was, of Intuit talking about how for every – metric that you track and hold people accountable for, you have to include, identify, and then also assess the perverse incentive you've created uh, by imposing that metric. So if, if, if people respond to incentives and you create a metric, humans being humans, they will look for easier and easier ways to, say, goose that number up or chop that number down. And you have to be aware of uh, what, what that does to their behavior and so on within the company. But secondly, measurement, there, there are things worth measuring and then there are things not worth measuring that can become vanity metrics that people use just to feel productive uh, instead of being productive. And just to point uh, to one thing that you, you mentioned, which I think a lot of people uh, – would assume of me that that is I uh, I physically track a lot of things all the time and not to say you assume that but uh, there is a point to my tracking which is identifying what works for say my physiology what harms me based on my genotype or whatever it might be and then and then I just stop the vast majority of measurement and do it very intermittently right so the uh, the the follow-up to that that I'd love to ask for people, since you mentioned you don't read much, if any, trade publications or news, what do you read? What are you reading? And maybe that's another opportunity for people to pare back on a – I'm not going to say thoughtless. It's too judgmental. But a a habit that perhaps consumes a lot of time without adding much value. Uh, so what do you, what do you yeah. – if not that kind of stuff, what type of stuff do you read? And what are you, what have you been reading recently or what are you reading? Yeah, I'll, I'll, let me get to that in one second. But I had a thought about the previous question or sort of the genesis of this for me is um, 
I used to do a lot of jogging. I still do a little bit, but um, I kind of had some knee surgery a while ago, and so I've sort of not been doing it as much. But I remember um, trying to hit certain times. Like I want to, um, you know, run a six and a half minute mile or whatever it was at the time. And you know, I'd go out and I'd run uh, a six minute mile in forty two seconds, and I remember being disappointed by that. And and I remember feeling like, wait, why should I be disappointed in that? I'm not running a race. I'm not competing against anybody. I'm sort of competing against myself, but I set that up for myself. That's not something I had to do. Like I created that moment to be upset. What if I just went out and ran because I enjoy running and just kind of run the best I can every time I run and, and just do that. And I found that I started doing that and I enjoyed it more. And it didn't mean I didn't run faster or slower. I didn't even necessarily know and it didn't really matter. I could feel whether or not like it was a good run. Like that was a good run. I had a good run today was sort of a much better way to figure out my sort of satisfaction than to measure it and say it was a six minute and 42 minute run versus a six minute and 38 second run. Uh, and I think that that's kind of where it sort of came into play for me in business too. So I think I pulled it from that. I wanted to share that because I just remembered that, that that was sort of a moment. And I don't remember how old I was when I did that. It was probably actually in high school or early in college or something where I started to think that way. And that's maybe where that, where that came from too. But anyway, I wanted to get that in there. Um, uh, reading, what do I read? Well, um, you know, I started reading the paper more, uh, which is like the newspaper, <laughs> not, not, not online news sources, but actually the newspaper. And this happened because I was at a hotel, uh, this is a few years ago, I was at a hotel and, you know, you go to a hotel and they ask you, check in, they say, you know, would you like a newspaper? And I used to always go, no, newspaper, who, who, who reads newspapers anymore? <laughs> um, and then, you know, cause I get all my news on the internet, which is instant all the time. And the thing is, most of that's not actually news, it's, it's entertainment. Um, I think the news, like once a day is actually a, a perfectly good pace for the news. So if you get the news in the morning, uh, you're basically getting all of yesterday's stuff that happened in the world that was that someone, you know, some editors decided was important. And, uh, and, and they just, they put that in the news, they print it. And the next morning you get it. Um, and then if you wait another full day to get the news again, pretty good chance, uh, that you didn't miss anything actually by paying attention to things all the time. Very few things happen during the middle of the day that you really absolutely need to know that you can't wait for the next morning to know. And so I've realized that the newspaper is actually a, a better way to get the news because it's better, the pace is better. Um, it, it prevents you from searching and seeking out news that you don't need to know about necessarily. It, it prevents you from um, playing the, the sport, I call it like the sport of information like trying to, to, to know more than everybody else and be like, be faster to the latest story than everybody else. So that, that's turning into a sport. And in fact, the news is presented. If you watch any, any news channel now, it's presented as a sport. I mean, you've got these chirons going across the bottom, these graphics scrolling across, you've got talking heads that are sort of debating it. it you, you turn on ESPN or you can turn on CNN. And, and if you hid the logos, you wouldn't, couldn't tell the difference really. And, um, so, so news coverage has turned into sports coverage and vice versa. And I just would rather say like once a day is enough, uh, of a, of a general, um, interval for me to be relatively well-informed about what's really going on in the world. Also at the resolution that matters. I think the other problem I'm, I'm having, and by the way, I, I look at Twitter and I click on links here and there, and I read some stuff that I like, but, but for the most part, um, 
I'm not trying to find out what happened an hour ago. And that to me is actually the real advantage to something like the newspaper where you simply cannot find out what happened an hour ago because what happened an hour ago in most cases doesn't matter. Now you could say, what if there's a national disaster or a major tragedy or school shooting and your kids at the school? Like there's all sorts of moments, of course, where real time truly does matter. But for the most part, it doesn't matter at all. And in fact, it's worse because you become uh, there's the fear of missing out. Like I, I, I think of it as, as Jomo, like the joy of missing out. I'm happy <laughs> to miss out. I want to miss out on most things. Is that so, did you come up with that? Yeah. I mean, that's in our new book, okay. which is like. It just, it's great. I don't need to know all this stuff all the time. And, and yeah, again, like, look, if there's a, if there's a, like, I'm in, I'm in LA right now, if there's a mudslide, like coming to my house, like I should know about that. Right. Obviously. But that's something that might happen every, you know, hopefully never, and maybe once a decade. And to say that I need to be informed real time about anything that could possibly happen anytime, because that one thing might happen once that's just a recipe for anxiety, and I try to avoid that at all costs. Definitely. Yeah. Now, I know you are a fan, to give one example, of a book titled Seeking Wisdom from Darwin to Munger oh, yeah. by Peter Bevelin. Uh, could you describe or just explain why you like that book, which is also one that I love. It was actually sent to me by uh, Derek Sivers of all people. Uh, folks can look him up, tim.blog forward slash Sivers, if you want to learn more about him. But Seeking Wisdom from Darwin to Munger by Peter Bevelin. Great book. Can you explain why you like that book and any other books that, uh, that, that you're also fond of? Yeah, so um, it's been a while since I've read that. So a book review would, would be really embarrassing. But what I'll <laughs> tell you is this. Um, I love uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. It's the, it, I, what I love about those two guys, and of course this book is not written by them, but it's sort of the, the, the spirit of it, which is this very clear, direct, no bullshit uh, way of writing, this very sort of simple folksiness that, you know what? Life really necessarily, I mean, I know this is a broad generalization, but in most cases, it's not that complicated. We tend to make things very complicated and we tend to make things very hard on ourselves. But really, there's some basic fundamentals of many things that if you kind of understand those, you're in pretty good shape and you don't need to go much further than that. And I love that kind of wisdom. I love old people in general, so Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I think Munger's in his 90s now and Buffett's in his 80s, but they've always had this kind of wisdom, which is this old school, almost farmer's almanac style wisdom. And I've always been attracted to that because I think complexity has also become a sport where it's like the more complicated something is, the the better, you know, the better you think you are at it. Like if you make it more complicated, you're better at it or something. And I, I just think it's kind of the opposite. So I love those guys. And that book to me sort of highlighted a lot of that kind of thinking. Um, and so anything that, that Munger's written, I love reading like Warren Buffett's letter to his shareholders, which I think is a, is a must read for anybody. hundred percent agreed. Yeah. yeah. Forget even just business people. Just if you want to read clear writing, uh, if you want to understand what it's like to communicate something at a high level, uh, you've got to read what he writes. So that's the kind of stuff I love to read. I love to read. I like Bezos' shareholder letters as well for similar reasons. That's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in. I don't read uh, fiction at all. Uh, and maybe I'm missing out there, but I, I just, my argument is always that I feel like the, 
the world is so interesting on its own uh, that there's more than enough I can read about real stuff. I know some people are going to just hate me for this, and I and, and I always get hate on it. Um, but I I just would rather read biographies, or I'd rather read about nature, or I'd rather read about that stuff because um, the the world is fascinating as it is. So those are the kinds of things I'm into um, these days. Uh, and you know, I've been reading. I know you're in, deep into this now. I've been reading a lot about stoicism, and I'm getting into that so that the um, uh, the um, is it the art of joy, ancient art of joy, or something? What's that? Uh, yeah, the art of joy by William That's something or other. I'm blanking. I'll put it in the show notes yeah. for everybody. Which is a book. compilation of both, I suppose, excerpts and samples, but also interpretations and applications of Stoic philosophy. Loved it. I want to say Irving, William Irving, maybe. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's it. So I read that recently or last year. I really loved that. I've been getting into a bit, a bit of that. Um, I don't know. That's the kind of stuff I'm into these days. Um, Why is that? Um, stoicism or just – Stoicism. Yeah. Um, it just resonates with me. Uh, a few a few basic things, by the way. I don't need to go that deep into it again. It's not like I need to go super deep in, into the, the you know the whole the whole world of it. But basically, th- things like you know you, you you pretty much only have control over your reactions to things, and I think that that is that in itself is enough. I could stop there. Uh, I, I, I go further, but I could stop there and say that is extremely poignant, especially today. I see people, you know getting so wound up, uh, about what other people say and what are other people do. And, uh, you know, when you, when you begin to see that what they're actually being wound up about is their own reaction to that thing, not the thing itself, the thing itself, you know, yeah, maybe it's terrible, maybe it's great, whatever it is, but it's, it's how you sort of respond to it and how you allow it to, to affect you. That's deep and really important. And I think one of the best lessons I've learned in the past few years. So there's that, also, just negative visualization, I think, is a really wonderful tool, and, and I'm paying a lot of attention to that in my life. Can um, you, just for people who, who aren't familiar with that, would you mind describing that just in brief, what that is, negative visualization? Yeah, as far as I understand it, at least, it's basically figuring out what the worst-case scenario might be in any given situation and coming to terms with that and sort of realizing that probably in many cases it won't be as bad as you think it could be. So get get used to the worst thing. And David and I talk about this occasionally, right? So DHH and I talk about this in the business. like. What if we made some grave, grave, horrible errors? So the business has been in business for 18 years. And what if like, or what if the competition destroys us or whatever? Like, what if we actually go out of business in two years? Like, what if that actually happens? We don't want that to happen. But what if it did? Like, what's the worst thing that would happen? Well, it would be terrible because a lot of people would lose their jobs and that would suck. But we think a lot of people who work for us would have no problem finding other jobs. So that would maybe be so bad. Um, I would have no income and Dave would have no income. That would suck, but we've done pretty well for ourselves. So we could live, we could live fine without that. Um, we couldn't do what we love doing every day. Well, that would kind of suck, but maybe we could still do it. Just not in that capacity. And you know what? A 20 year run isn't so bad. Like if we only made it 20 years in business, that wouldn't be so bad either. So just thinking about like, what would be the worst thing that could possibly happen? And then, you know, recognizing that probably will not happen. It just helps you, I think, calm down about that. Um, and it's sort of, avoid this constant set of worries. In some ways, you sort of get all the worrying out at once. And then you go about your day and go, well, if that happens, then it happens. At least I know what that's going to feel like or what I think that might feel like. It's not that it would eliminate all of the feelings. And there certainly would be other negative feelings I may have missed. But for the most part, I thought it through. And I, I feel like I can probably cope with it now if that actually happens versus having something surprise you um, in the moment and having it be real 
that can be really traumatic and really difficult to handle. So that's my general understanding of that, at least. That's a great, that descri- oh, I think great description. Definitely. I think it's a great description. And just by analogy, I was just thinking this, uh, <laughs> I'm sitting in this room, uh, where I do a lot of recording and I did a episode with a, a, a former MMA fighter, but also, uh, s- <laughs> special forces sniper named Tim Kennedy. <laughs> and, uh, he's a beast of a fighter and a fascinating guy, but he was saying, Oh, in my bag right now, I have X, Y, and Z firearm. I have enough first aid that I could patch you and the videographer together if one of you had an arm chopped off. I'm looking at how I could block the doorway in case of A, B, and C. And he's having, he knows exactly how to assess the situation in specifics. And the reason that I bring that up is as you were describing this negative visualization, I was thinking to myself, It's something akin, metaphorically speaking, to taking a fear. Let's just say you have a semi-nebulous fear of something going wrong. And let's say that fear is then embodied by a person. And that person says, I'm going to destroy you. And then you run away and all day or all week you're thinking, oh my God, that person's going to destroy me. How are they going to destroy me? And there's this ambiguity that's really stress producing. But if you were to sit down with that person and say, okay, I know you're going to destroy me. But I want to know exactly how you're going to destroy me. They're like, well, first, like I'm going to ambush you at the corner of Second and Colorado, and uh, I'm going to try to hit you with this type of bat. And you're like, okay, now I like know where I know what they're going to do. I have a, I can start planning a response, right? Or they say, you know, I'm going to beat you to death with a Nerf baseball bat, and you're like, that's actually not going to beat me to death at all. And <laughs> and you you start to realize how recoverable a lot of this is. Uh, almost yeah. all, all of these fears are either completely unfounded or completely recoverable or preventable. And uh, it's it's really arguably the most valuable thing I have learned from any type of reading of philosophy is this negative visualization, which I tend to do in written form uh, mm-hmm. a lo- uh, in an exercise that I call fear setting, which people can Google and find for free everywhere. Uh, but, uh, I'll stop my, 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 my soapbox speech at this point about the fear setting and negative visualization, but it's extremely powerful. And I think this is particularly true, at least in my experience, if you come from a family as I did of worriers, people who spent a lot of time focused on the future with a high baseline of anxiety and mm-hmm. whether that is, uh, innate to my code, to my DNA, or simply an adopted set of behaviors and beliefs and thought patterns. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination, but it's it's really been hugely, hugely helpful. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like that's similar. Uh, I I feel like I worried a lot, and I still do. I still battle with this, and I do kind of feel like it is a battle, actually, in a sense, um, with worrying. Um, and and I don't. I've stopped worrying about myself, but I, I have a three and a half year old now. So I, I worry, I worry about him. And I find myself, uh, uh, realizing that like kids are actually really quite resilient and I shouldn't be worrying so much that, that things are going to be just fine. And it's actually a really good practice for me to, to use negative visual, negative visualization. Um, when I'm worrying about things like, Oh, he's going to go go to school and get sick and then he's going to have the flu and then I'm going to get the flu. And if I get the flu, then I can't do this. And they're all how my, my wife's going to get the flu and she's pregnant. And then like you go through all this stuff and it's like, 
Yeah, that could happen. And, you know, I can't you can't stop it. I can't prevent like kids, <laughs> kids go to school and they get sick and like you might get sick and like, OK, but if you think about how bad it can be, you start to really ruminate on it versus like, yeah, that could happen. And if that happens, it happens. You just deal with it and live with it. And and but I, I remember before I got into this negative visualization, I would actually worry a lot. And what's cool about negative visualization, I think, is it, it clears the worry out of the room in a sense. Like you give it a worry, like you worry about it <laughs> for a while and then it's then it's over. The worrying is over. And I think that's the key insight for me in it, which is it gives me a moment to say, yeah, OK, I'm going to worry about this. And I'm going to worry about it as bad as it could possibly be and think about how exactly horrible it could be. And then I can then I'm done with that. And that's the difference compared to consistent low grade, always on worry, where you'd never have that moment where you can really confront it until it happens when it usually doesn't. Definitely. And I looked, I looked up the, the title of the book. The author is William B. Irvine, like Irvine, California. And the, the title is A Joy. <laughs> wow. I can't even read it correctly. All right, here we go. <laughs> A Guide to the Good Life, subtitle, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. And that's the one. And it is a fantastic introduction to stoicism and by itself if you never read another book on the subject extremely extremely helpful yeah you mentioned you mentioned your uh your son right you have a, mm-hmm. you have a son and yep. i'm curious if we if we turn back the clock do you remember the first time you got in trouble or any memorable early memory of getting into trouble oh my god i got into so much trouble when i was younger um the first time though, um, I remember the first time I cried so hard that I almost couldn't breathe. You know, that crying where you like (laughs) hyperventilate. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember why that happened, but I'm sure I did something really bad. Uh, and, and I think my, my, uh, my parents like reminded me how bad it was or something. And I got really scared. I think I, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember that moment. Um, I, but I, I, I got in a lot of trouble when I was younger. I probably should have gotten in more trouble. I probably got away with too many things as well. Um, but, uh, I, I got, I got into a lot of trouble. Like my parents would have to pick me up at the police station when I was younger. When I was younger, like I'm talking like 15, yeah. <laughs> like that kind of thing or 14 junior, actually junior high was bad. Like what is that? 13, 14, something like that. 15, Somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was really bad. I, I kind of got in with the with a bad crowd and 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 started doing some bad stuff. Um, Wait, although it wasn't so what, bad. What type of what, what what were the offenses? Let's get specific. Okay, yeah. so <laughs> it's actually entrepreneurial stuff. Um, <laughs> side so I, side hustle. Yeah, side. Yeah, right. Before it was called that. Uh, <laughs> uh, continue. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just imagining the expression you just made, like the wince as I as I said yes. that. <laughs> You know me well. <laughs> Go ahead. So I was, um, I don't know when the entrepreneurial bug bit me, but it, it bit me early. And um, I loved um, knives and like throwing stars and like switchblades, although I couldn't get those because those were illegal. Um, I just love that kind of stuff. How, how, my- how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, probably today. How no, old today. Today, yeah. I'm 43. Okay, so yeah, we so we're of the same uh, vintage. Yeah. So, I, I I had too much caffeine, so I'm interrupting you. But the uh, we grew up when like ninjas and breakdancing 
were yes. as cool as it could as as cool as you could possibly be. Yes. And there was a catalog called Asian World of Martial Arts. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. AWMA. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just to put some context. So at that time, people like you and me, it was not infrequent that young guys, definitely mostly young guys, would fantasize about throwing stars and climbing claws and grappling hooks. So just to, oh, man. Just to set the all. stage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Please continue. So, so you- <laughs> I somehow, I don't remember how this happened. Somehow, maybe it was my dad who got on this mailing list or I got on this, like, and we were starting to get these catalogs at home. And one of them was that one. Another one was called Sportsman's Guide. Um, <clears throat> There's a few other ones where it's kind of like army surplusy stuff. And I don't really me- remember exactly how it all happened, but I started looking through the pages and there were these cool knives and throwing stars and like some ballistic knives, like knives you could actually like shoot with a spring, like crazy <laughs> shit, just crazy stuff. And I just got into it and like tear gas and this kind of weird shit. So, <laughs> so I, just, I mean, a 13 year old boy for me, it was just the coolest thing in the world, right? I don't know why, but I was so into it. Oh, and for so sure. I started to take these catalogs and make Xerox copies of these pages and then cut them out and then reassemble my own catalog. Um, and I would like re I would, I would kind of scratch out the prices and, and like put new prices on them and then make catalogs, which I would then distribute to my friends. <laughs> my friends then <laughs> would buy these knives and stuff for me. Um, I would then, uh, so I take these orders and I'd make an order form and everything. And I would take these things. And, um, this is back in like, 85. I remember I got my first Mac in 85. And so I was like using my Mac to like print stuff out my image writer or whatever I had at the time. And I'd make these catalogs and these order forms and print the stuff out and distribute it to some friends. And they would like make orders. I'd get the, I'd get the cash from them. They, everyone had like part-time jobs. So they'd give me some cash. I'd get the cash. I would place an order through these catalogs for this stuff. I'd order it COD because, which I don't know if they have that anymore called cash on delivery. I don't think they have that anymore, but I didn't have a credit card. For those of you who are much younger and don't remember or don't know what this was, UPS could actually come to your to your house, bring a package, and you would pay the UPS driver. The UPS driver would then take that money and put it in an envelope and then send it back to the company. That's how you'd actually buy things sometimes. So anyway, I get cash. I'd order stuff COD. I'd fake that I was sick that day. I'd stay home from school. I knew when it was going to be delivered. The UPS driver would come. Um, I would give him the cash. Uh, and I'd get these things and I'd distribute them to my friends and I would make profit. Um, <laughs> and then I did that with like cigarettes and chewing tobacco and all sorts of stuff. And so I, I kind of like, then, then I had a bit of a reputation as a pyro cause I love fireworks and fire and stuff. So I'd like, anyway, I got, I got into a lot of trouble eventually, as you can imagine, selling contraband to, uh, to 15 year old boys in the suburbs of <laughs> Chicago. Um, and then like, you know, I kind of got in with the wrong crowd and then like, all sorts of weird things happened at some point. But anyway, um, I eventually like got that out of my system, but I, that's how I started getting into being an entrepreneur is, is that, and I love the idea of carving up other people's catalogs and making my own. And then I got a reseller's license somehow and got into electronics and started being able to buy things at like dealer costs from these big distributors. And then like, for example, radar detectors, so people could, my friends could speed, you know, 16. So like, let's go speed, let's go get a radar detector in our car. So I'd buy radar detectors at like cost, double the price on to my friends because they couldn't get them. And telephone, like cordless phones was, you know, back then, like then then computer hard drives in the early days and then computers. And that's kind of how I got into all this stuff. But it was, it was, um, 
it's funny because like the way I think about business today, even the business I'm in today, Basecamp, I just see it as a continuation of when I was 13 selling knives. Honestly, like it's all one business where I, <laughs> I'm buying or making the thing that I want and then finding other people who want the same thing. It's the same business as it ever was when I was 13 and is today. Um, I'm not selling illegal stuff now, but um, <laughs> other than that, same spirit. And uh, anyway, so I got in trouble. I don't remember what, you know, I got in trouble probably before that too, but I, my parents let me get away with a lot as an only child. So I think they'd let me get, get away with extra, an extra amount of stuff. Um, but uh, those early days, I think, paved the way for me to really learn uh, how, how to, you know, how to sell things, how to market things, how to promote things, how to package things, how to mark things up and how to also charge for things, which is in a strange way, the thing that's so deficient about our industry today, the tech industry, which is like a lot of people, don't, they don't, a lot of companies don't charge for anything. They give stuff away for free and then they have to live with all these other, um, uh, the negatives of, of that, which we're even seeing play out in the news you know, now. Um, so anyway, I, I learned a lot of lessons from doing the wrong thing, let's say. <laughs> you mentioned a bunch of weird things happened. We're not, we don't necessarily have to go into that, although I'm certainly happy to. I'll go into one of them. Let's okay. do it. Yeah, yeah, because I'm – and then you're like, I got it out of my system. I'm like, well, for a lot of people, they never quite get it out of their system. So there had to be, I would imagine, a catalyzing event or events or something that encouraged you <laughs> to get there it out. So let's, let's go into one. There was and there were. So first of all – um, I had this friend, I won't mention his name, but he was a bad influence on me. Um, my parents spotted him immediately, said, this kid's no good. We don't, we don't want you to be with this kid. But anyway, um, I, I still was cause he was cool and I wanted to be cool. Um, anyway, uh, one day during lunch, um, we put a, uh, uh, like a Tic Tac, like a mint. It wasn't a Tic Tac, but it was some sort of mint in this other kid's milk. Okay. at school. And, um, after he drank his milk, we, we told him this is, again, I'm, I'm so ashamed of this whole thing, but anyway, um, we told him that we poisoned him, right? <laughs> um, right. Bad. I mean, it's bad. This is, I'm just, but how, bad and how old are you? You're 15, uh, 15 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. This 15. is kind of, I mean, I hate to say it not to excuse it, but sort of par for the course, 15 year old boy behavior. <laughs> yeah. It was shitty, but I'm just being honest. So yeah. we did that. We obviously didn't poison anybody, but like we told him we did. Okay. And, um, and it's funny because we—it wasn't a bullying thing. He was actually a friend of ours, so it wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like we were picking on anybody. He's like a friend of ours, and and we did this anyway. In math class later that day, he passes out because he was probably anxious and thought we poisoned him. <laughs> so he, he has to get his stomach pumped because he thought he told he told the his, like he told the teachers, then they like the police got involved that he'd been poisoned, and I had to go down to the police station. My parents had to like take me to the police station. <laughs> And all this shit, and it was like, it was, it was a mint, you know, but it was, it was, we set this up in a way where, where he didn't think it was. And so anyway, that was some of the shit I got into. And eventually I got into that and a couple of the things. Um, eventually my parents said, Hey, look, um, enough. Uh, if you get in trouble again, we're sending you off to boarding school. Um, which means you're, you're, you're away from all your friends and you're away from us and the whole thing. And it was that statement alone that changed everything for me. I don't know why either. Uh, I, I didn't even know what boarding school was. It probably sounded kind of cool. Like I get to go away and sleep away. Like there's something kind of almost cool about it in a sense, like when you don't really know what it would be, but they said it in such a stern way that it was so clear that this was not where I wanted to go and what I wanted to, where I wanted to be. <laughs> right. The tone made it clear. It was not desirable for you. <laughs> yes. And that was the moment when I basically 
I, I, I went back to my old friends who were awesome. Um, I never really left them, but I kind of sort of did. And, and they were very cool about it. And they kind of welcomed me back basically. And I just stopped doing all that shit. I just stopped it. Um, and it sounds like how, how could I have just stopped it? But it's probably because I, I wasn't really, it was sort of this, this stunt that I was pulling and not really what I wanted to do. It was just kind of a fun thing when I realized that there were consequences. And once I realized there were true consequences, I, I, uh, I changed it. And, and I, I think that was kind of the, the thing for me is that, um, especially when I was younger, I would sort of do things. I remember like, so I went to Hebrew school, like after school and, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it because it was like two hours, Tuesdays and Thursdays after school. I wasn't religious. My parents weren't really either, but they sort of, it was just sort of something that everyone in the neighborhood did. And I kind of did. And it was out of respect for my grandparents who were more religious. Anyway, so I went to this thing like two days a week after school and I would, I remember, I remember my dad telling me once that like, um, cause I was, I was kind of bad there too. I was extra bad there. I would always like question the teachers like, well, wait, pr prove it. Can you prove that God exists? Like stuff like that. I was just being an <laughs> asshole, you know? And cause like, I was just pushing them cause I knew like you couldn't prove it. And I was just being, and so that was just like a being difficult. Anyway, um, I got in trouble and my dad was so surprising to hear. So right. <laughs> right. And so my dad, my dad's like, you know, he's like, you shouldn't do this, but I just want you to know, like, none of this goes on your record. You know, the record you always, I don't know if you ever threatened with record. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always found I, this. I record. didn't have a exactly pristine record as a kid. So right. yes, I had the, the record. And there is no record. That's the thing. <laughs> but I didn't know it at the time until my dad's like, so my dad's like, you know, this isn't going to go on your record. And that actually like made me do more bad shit. Um, and eventually I got kicked out of Hebrew school, um, for, for like, Doing some other stuff, which I really don't want to go into. Gross, but, um, gross insubordination. Yeah, basically. And they just had enough of me and they, they knew I had enough of them and the whole thing. And they let me like go through and do, get my bar mitzvah and they like, let me do that. But they're like, just don't come to school anymore. Okay. Um, so Crea that was creative differences. Yeah, basically, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, all those things, like at some point I just, I, I my parents kind of said boarding school or, or, you know, stop or this. And I stopped. And, um, you know, back then I, 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 you know, I, I, as, as high school kids do, you drink a bit and this, like, I got that all on my system also, like all that stuff I kind of got out of my system. And that's kind of one of the reasons I didn't really like college. Cause in college, everyone was experimenting with stuff for the first time. in in a sense, I feel like I'd already been through all that. And so the social experience in college was, was actually really boring for me and, and almost felt childish actually, because I felt like I'd been through it when I was a child and now I see everyone else doing that. And so I didn't really enjoy college at all for that reason. Um, and I just sort of kind of muddled through and got it done. Um, and then by that point I was already doing website design, like uh, freelance. I had a software business that I'd already started on the side selling software that I made to organize my own music collection and all the stuff I started, started doing. And to me, college was actually just getting in the way of me getting out there and, and doing the things that I really wanted to do. So, so you mentioned organizing your music collection and, uh, we, we could dig into that. I remember reading a story about it. People could send you in twenty dollars uh, to get audio file, right? That yeah. you would upload to AOL. And so I read the story of getting this. You were getting this envelope from Germany or some other country, the airmail envelope that I'm sure some people have seen with the red and blue around the edges. And uh, lo and behold, right, order form, 
$20 bill, like big deal. Was that the first time that you were like, holy shit, like I could do this or I'm an entrepreneur or I'm successful? Like, do you remember of, of, of these many entrepreneurial experiments and ventures that you've been involved with? Was, was there a particular incident that stands out like, wow, holy shit, like this, this is something that I could actually make a living doing. I could do this. Yeah, the 20, well, first of all, I never thought about making a living really, but I thought about what was different about the the, the software, getting 20 bucks in the mail for, for software that I made was that it was the first time I realized, actually, let me step back. I'd, I'd been selling stuff before, right? We talked about that, like th- throwing stars and sorts of that <laughs> shit, but I had to do work for that. Like I had to work, I had to make a sale each time. I had to get inventory each time. I would sell inventory. I have to get more inventory. I have to go out and convince my friends to buy more shit, right? What was different about the software thing was that I could make this thing once. I could put it out there into the world and a lot of people could pay me for it. And I could, in a sense, make money while I was sleeping. I didn't think about it necessarily that way. I do like I can look back on it now and and say that's what I felt. I didn't feel it that way. But what I did realize was that I could make something that I wanted. Um, I could put a lot of effort into it and put it out there and let it speak for itself. And if people liked it, they'd be happy to pay for it and that people are happy to pay for things and that like I don't have to go out and sell each one. I could put it up and people could buy it from all over the world when they find it on their own. That was, I think, the distinctly different thing for me at that moment versus everything else I'd done in the past was sort of one off sales, including like, you know, eventually I was doing some like logo design and website design, which came a little bit later. Uh, after, well, actually, eh, I'm not sure what the timeline was, but even that you have to find a client every time and you got to find someone new every time and the whole thing. Um, and, and software was different and that's probably, and that's what I do today is I make software, we put it out there and technically, you know, technically you're making money while you're sleeping because it's running and people pay you on a monthly basis. And, uh, you know, you kind of make it once and put it out there versus, although of course you're making it every day, you're changing it and tweaking it, but it's, you know, still the same spirit. So that was the big change for me, I think. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I realized that, um, the, the, the deeper realization though, again, is that like, I don't, I can make this for myself. I can satisfy myself and that, then the next step is to find other people like you versus trying to dominate an industry. And I think this is a fundamental thing that we have today at Basecamp, which is I have no interest, DHH and I talk about this, we have no interest in dominating anyone or anything. We don't land, like, I'm not out for land grab. I don't know what our market share is. I could care less. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, none of this stuff, I'm not looking to put any competitors out of business. I'm not looking to, to, to be number one. None of that stuff matters. What matters is, can I make something that I like? Can we put it out there to support our costs and make more money than we spend? And if that means we have 1% market share or 0.1% market share, fine with me. I don't care. If it means we have 50% market share, fine with me. I don't care. None of that matters. Um, what matters is, can I, can I build something I like and can it be sustainable and can it fund our, our continued development and endeavors? And that's also with the music thing because I made it for myself. I, I was loaning out my CDs and tapes to friends and never getting them back. And I forgot who <laughs> I loaned them to. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, what, maybe if I organize this, I could like have an inventory of all the stuff I have, you know, bootlegs and CDs and the whole thing. And whenever I loan one out to someone, I'll just like note the date and who it was and then 
I'll, have the, I'll build a system that will send me a reminder about that 30 days later. And I can go, hey, hey, Bill, remember that CD that I let you have? I said, I need this weekend. Like, I still don't have it. And then I would get all my stuff back. And so, you know, that's kind of what, what, what I've been doing ever since is, is building stuff that, that works for me. <laughs> so I want to tell a story through your words about how the world welcomed you with open arms and immediately started buying everything that you had to sell. So I'd like to read a bit of text here. Uh, And I'm pretty sure this is not a misquote since you uh, typed it out and sent it to me uh, some time ago. Here we go. Way back in the 90s when I was getting started as a web designer, I sent my work into an award site called HighFive.com. At the time, it was the shit. If you were awarded a High Five award, you were recognized. Now, I sent my stuff in, and I'm going to leave his name out just so I don't have anybody chasing me around. The guy who ran it emailed me back. I don't have the original email anymore, but basically he told me I sucked. I had no business being in the web design business and that I should never email him again. That rejection filled me with so much fire, not anger, not resentment, not disappointment, but fire, fire to kick ass and prove his impression wrong. I loved the rejection. It made me. And that was in response to a question I asked you, which was how is a failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? That was in my, my last book, Tribe of Mentors. And my, my question about this, and you can certainly take this anywhere you want, if you want to elaborate, correct, do anything else. But my question, uh, speaking personally as someone who has struggled with anger, I mean, I, I spent so much of my childhood being bullied really badly. I was born premature, really, really small, and with a lot of health issues up until about sixth grade, that I, I built up this anger that I used as fuel to then later compete and fight and do all of these things so that I wouldn't be taken advantage of again, effectively, right? I mean, there was just a coping mechanism. And now I've realized that anger is very often not helpful and that it is the acid that damages the vessel, not that which it is poured upon, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the line, I'll read it again, that rejection filled me with so much fire, not anger, not resentment, not disappointment, but fire. How in what was the self-talk that made it fire and not anger or resentment? If that makes any sense, or how do you how do you transmute what could be a negative response into something that's actually helpful in a case like this? Yeah, I remember that distinctly because um, it was the first time I got enough courage up to sort of submit work to a to a award site thing, and the rejection was so. Uh, in your face, like you suck, basically don't do this. Um, that it, because it was so, it was almost a caricature of a, of a rejection. <laughs> like to actually <laughs> right. have someone be like, you suck, don't do this. Like no one would ever say that, but <laughs> he did. Um, that I would, it just, it almost made me laugh and be like, I'm just going to prove you wrong. It was that kind of energy. Um, that was the fire. Like I, I've always, in those cases, I've always responded to um, those sorts of moments as, as 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 motivation to prove somebody wrong or to like prove myself right, maybe. Uh, and maybe that's sort of a bit of the flaw I still have to work out, or one of those two. But I, I just wanted to to say, I, I, okay, well, fuck you. I'm going to show you that I can do this. And I don't even know. I don't. I shouldn't even care, right? Like now, I realize that this is again like my reaction to someone, like who. Who cares about this guy? Who cares what he thinks about my work? Um, it's also tied to the fact that, like, I, I just, I, I know, you know, look, um, 
obviously I come from a, a position of privilege to say this whole thing, but like I've just I don't let people offend me, and I, I have been in situations where, uh, like for example, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned earlier I'm Jewish, and I remember in college some people called me a kike, which is a fucking horrible slur, and I, I've I've had people like I've walked by a penny and they're like, oh, you should pick that up. Like I, I've had some of that shit, right? Um, and it's like it doesn't matter. I don't care. Like I don't. It's to me that kind of stuff. Uh, just has never upset me because it's because it's like that's just a reflection on the other person's ignorance or point of view. I've never let that kind of stuff get to me, and I think that is that something your parents in, instilled in you. I mean, that's not the no, that's not the most common reaction. Yeah, I don't know where it came from. I don't know where that came from, but I've just never, I've never remembered ever feeling offended by anyone's sort of slight at me for whatever reason. And like, look. I'm, you know, I'm five, seven, so I'm relatively short guy. Like there's been those kinds of things that that you have, like there's all sorts of stuff that, that, that you get, you know? Um, and I know a lot of people have it way fucking worse than I do. So I, I, I totally get all of that. I'm just using like, look, all the only examples I have are my own. Right. And so, but I, I bet I've been in those situations where I could see someone flipping over it and be like, what, what the fuck? That's a horrible thing to say. And well, how could you ever say it to somebody? And I've just never felt that way. I've been like, okay, that's where you come from. Fine. That's fine. Like I, I don't really even have the energy or the care to try and set you right or whatever. It's not my job. I don't really want to do it. Um, I, it is what it is. It kind of just bounces off me in a sense. Um, but one thing, one reaction I have had is, is motivation. That's the thing that I've always had when someone says I can't do something or, or I'm not this enough or I'm not that enough. It's motivation to prove, prove that wrong. Um, and I don't know if it's the, the, the dark and dirty side of it is like, is it actually revenge or is it motivation? And I'm not sure that I necessarily know, uh, what that is. Maybe I think it's motivation, but maybe it's more revenge, which is a pretty crappy, uh, emotion or whatever that would be called. Um, but, um, I never do it trying to hurt somebody. So maybe it is motivation, not revenge, but I'm not totally sure to be honest. Um, but I don't know where it came from. Uh, but, um, I just never remember ever being angry about something that someone said about me or how they've judged me or whatever. I just never really cared. Well, to, to maybe provide a contrast to that, it, um, it seems like you have an abhorrence for wasting time. <laughs> you have a strong, yes. It seems like you have a strong dislike, uh, for wasting time. And you've, you've talked about this before, written about it. What rules for yourself, commandments, systems, anything do you have in place to help minimize time wasting? So something I, I think I mentioned, I wrote this up in your book, actually, as a response is sort of, um, first of all, getting better at saying no is, is a critical thing to begin with and being honest about the things you really want to do and things you really don't want to do and not sort of just doing things because you feel obligated because it'll make someone else feel good. Like who knows how someone else is actually going to feel. It's sort of presumptuous to suggest that I should do something because it'll make someone else happy. Uh, it's actually kind of hard to know what makes people happy. And, and, uh, so I, I try not to, I try not to go down that road because I think you can find yourself in, in a difficult spot and, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to do. Um, so I've just tried to get better at saying no and really recognizing the things I like to do and I don't like to do. I've kind of described my, my life as a, it's a weird description of my life, but partial description of my life is like, I just try to do everything I can to avoid hassles. I don't like hassles. And to me, a hassle is like something I don't want to do in the future. 
it's almost never something I have to do now. It's something I have to do in the future. And so something I've been getting better and better at is, is, is basically just being honest with people who ask me to do things far, far in advance and say, I can't make commitments that far in advance. I know that you need a commitment that far in advance. So you're planning an event or you're doing, I, I totally understand that. But I, I, I find that, um, I tend to, um, this is a strong word and it's not fair to what other people are doing. So it's going to come off strange, but I don't think of it in terms of that, that they're, what they're about to do isn't worth it. But I, I tend to regret things that I say yes to far in advance because not because of the thing itself, but because it actually prevents me from having opportunities to, to, to explore other things in the moment when I get there that I might be more interested in doing. So this comes back to the goal setting, perhaps maybe it's all the same thing, which is that I don't know how I'm going to feel six months from now on Friday night at four o'clock, uh, speaking, uh, you know, where I'm scheduled to speak in an event. Maybe I'd rather not be doing that six months from now. The only way I'm going to know that is to basically wait until that moment and decide whether or not I want to do that. But of course I can't cancel on people if, if I, if I booked events, you know, so I've just, I've just found in, in my life that the things I put on my calendar, because it's so easy to put something far in advance on your calendar, because it, it costs nothing, in a sense. Um, it doesn't take any of your time now. It doesn't take any of your time next week. It's like, you know, four months from now, sure, I'll do that. And then it comes up on that. And I'm like, I wish I wouldn't have said yes to that. Not because of the thing itself, but because of the feeling of, of being now obligated to do something that I may not choose to want to have done in that moment had I had the choice then or, or now. Could you give us some sample language or just a basic kind of template that you would use to polite decline? Yeah. Politely decline something. Somebody hits you up. Let, let's just say you actually know them. They're like, hey, six months from now on such and such a date, we're having this event. ABC impressive speakers are coming. We'd love that, blah, blah, blah. Right. So then yeah. what does your response look like? Well, I mean, sometimes I will say yes, but most of the time I'll say I'll say, you know, thanks for writing. I appreciate the invitation. Um, I can't book anything that far in advance right now. I, I have a hard time filling my calendar six months ahead of time or something like that. I'll pick, let me think about the language. Basically, I would say, I would say, uh, um, I, I can't book anything that far in advance. Um, sometimes it's because I'll, I'll be specific. Like my wife is pregnant and I like, you know, like that, that's too close. So I can't do that. But there's other times where I'm just like, I just can't book that far in advance. Um, if, if there's an opening closer and you need someone like, let me know then, um, I'd be happy to do it or perhaps another time. But six months from now is, is just too far out for me to book things is kind of what I'll say. Um, and you know, uh, I, I always try to, um, first of all, it's an honor to be invited to anything. The fact that anyone wants to hear me talk is, is still surprises me. Um, and it, so I, am always, I always appreciate it. And I'm sure I always make sure to lead with that, but then I just, I, I'm honest about it, which is I can't put anything on my calendar that far in advance. I can't book things that far in advance. Um, also, another thing, like, for example, um, I've been asked a lot recently to speak uh, internationally. And, and, um, and I'll just tell people, which is true, like, I, I just don't like to travel internationally for business. Um, if I want to go somewhere, I'd, I'd like to go somewhere because I, you know, for personal reasons, but I, I don't like to travel internationally for business. So I'll just say, like, I, I'm just not traveling internationally for business right now. It's not something I'm really doing. So I appreciate the invitation again. If you ever have an event in the United States, let me know that kind of stuff. Um, cause I think if you just make up stories, it's just why, why, why not just be honest and, 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 and clear about it. And, 
and you know, people are very understanding. Actually, they go, I totally get that. Um, hey, if we have an opening, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, if not, no big deal. Maybe another time. Uh, maybe there's some other thing we'll have coming up that's that's sooner. I said, yeah, of course. Let me know if something's sooner. That'd be that'd be great. So I kind of do it that way. And by the way, this this um, I was sort of inspired by, and I don't know if this is true. I read somewhere uh, that Warren Buffett kind of does this with meetings. I don't know if, if the, again, I don't know if this is true. I read it, um, which is that if you want to meet with him, uh, you basically have to write his assistant or whatever the day before. So if you if you if you write, I'm sure there's exceptions to this rule, but in most cases, if you want to meet with him, you can't say. Hey, uh, I'd like to meet with, you know, I'm going to be in Omaha in March, uh, March 22nd. Uh, can I, can I, you know, meet up with Mr. Buffett or something? And, uh, the answer would be when you get in on the 21st, uh, email me then. And if he has any openings the next day, then he'd be happy to meet with you. And now of course he's Warren Buffett. People, people have written about this. People are like, Oh, he's Warren Buffett. Like the thing is, is that, yeah, he is Warren Buffett, but you are you. And your time is yours, just like his is his, and his attention is his, and yours is yours. And who cares how wealthy he is? What does that have to do with any of this? Who cares what position he's in? I understand that, like, yeah, he 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 is in a position where he can maybe say no more frequently than others, but so can a lot of people. I don't think people give themselves enough credit and give no enough credit and defend their own attention and time as they as much as they should. Um, people will will protect money. Uh, they'll protect all sorts of things, but they won't protect their, their attention and their time. And, and, uh, I, I think more people should get better at that. So I've been practicing getting better at that. And it was sort of inspired in part by, by hearing about if it's true or not, I don't know, but hearing about how Buffett does that and how people respond to the boundaries that you set, particularly if you do so tactfully tells you quite a lot about yeah. the, the, uh, the, the nature of your, true relationship. <laughs> That's true too. With these people. I remember one time I was going through a very difficult period and was trying to set up a number of different rules to simplify and clear my calendar. And it also just took me a long time to get back to people, even people I cared quite a lot about. But the people who are really close to me know that that is the case. Who knows? I could be lost in the Amazon jungle for three weeks. Like They don't get too upset about things. And uh, at one point, I got uh, got an angry text from this uh, more of an acquaintance, a very powerful guy. And he said, he was like, Tim, dude, what the hell? Like, you're harder to get a hold of than the president. I just talked to him last week or something like that. <laughs> and uh, then we hopped on the phone and he was really upset. And <laughs> I said, well, the president has a bigger team than I do. <laughs> and <laughs> number one. And like number two, like I hate to say it, but you're being really aggressive right now. Like of all the things on my list of priorities, including my family and this, and I mentioned a few things that were pretty heavy, like you're kind of number 17 right now. And that doesn't mean that you're unimportant to me, but it means that you just have to wait until I'm done with the first 16. So like if you, yeah. if you can't do that, I get it, I suppose, but it's not going to change. And uh, it's a, it's definitely a learned skill. Uh I mean, I, I've absolutely, and you've maybe had this experience, but when my first book came out, I was so absolutely astonished that anyone would pay me anything to talk about anything, that I said yes to everything that came in. And then uh, six months later, I was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in death of a salesman. Like, this is, yeah. this is awful. Yeah. And um, over time, I've become better at setting parameters 
Now, you've mentioned, uh, since we're talking about Warren Buffett, clear thinking and clear writing, which you seem to value very highly. And in doing a little bit of homework for this conversation, uh, I've read, and you can tell me if this is true or still the case, but how one of your top hiring criteria is whether the person is a great writer, uh, whether the person can communicate well in written form. Uh, is I'd love for you to say whether that is still the case or not and why that is the case. Yeah, it's definitely the case. It's sort of been the case for forever for us. Um, it's the case because, first of all, most communication is written these days. Uh, and, and first of all, let me step back. Like we're a remote company, so especially most communication is written. Uh, if you're going to have, if you're in a, a local company and you're having meetings all the time, sometimes verbal is enough. But for most, in most cases, people are writing more and more and more than they ever have before. Um, and one of the most costly and inefficient things is having to repeat yourself uh, or answer questions about something that should have been clear in the first place. It's, it's re really quickly, if, if you can't communicate clearly, um, you're communicating probably three or four times more frequently than you need to. Um, and that can be really inefficient and really frustrating, extremely frustrating. So we've always looked at writing as a, like clear writing as, as, a, as a prerequisite for every position we have at the company because everybody is supposed to communicate with themselves, with the rest of the company, with their team, and most of it's done done via written word. And we also, for example, the first, by the way, the first the first sort of gatekeeper of it is is the is the cover letter. So when people apply for a job, if they don't, if they just like send a resume or whatever, they're out instantly. That's not even something we look at. Um, I, I always read or I always want to see a cover letter of some sort. It can it can just be an email, of course, with a with an attachment of the resume or whatever. But um, I want to see how you how you open the 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 conversation. You know, how do you describe yourself? Uh, why why are you applying for this job and not just any job? And you can tell very quickly if someone's gonna if someone can explain themselves, if someone can advocate for themselves and advocate for their ideas and their position and who they are and why they should work here. Um, if, if they're, if they're clear minded, if they're friendly, like all that stuff comes through in writing. I think if you pay enough attention to the words, you can see a lot of that. Um, and, uh, um, also for example, when I hire designers, I look at their design, but I look at their writing almost a little bit more. Um, whenever we, we hire a designer, when we get down to the last five candidates that we are really think could be finalists, we hire them to do a project for us, um, fifteen hundred bucks for a week, and they do a project for us, so we can kind of see their actual work. But even more importantly, is we ask them to write up why they did what they did, um, because there's a lot of great designers out there, but people have to advocate for themselves. And so I want to see why they did what they did. I want to hear their, I want to well, not hear, but read their 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 point of view and and their line of thinking and how they came up with the solutions and. And that helps me when I read that helps me understand what would be like to work with that person for real. Um, if you know, are they able to explain why they did what they did? Are they glossing over little details that actually matter? Like, what is it? How do they, how do they see their work and how do they write about it? It's a very important part of, of the job here at Basecamp. So, um, yeah, so writing's important in every position. It doesn't matter what position you're in. You still have to be a, a great writer. We typically start by looking at the cover letter, um, the, the actual like work assignments to get hired here, um, typically involve writing, no matter what the, what the position. And I just think it's it's always proven in our case to be a really good indicator of someone's success here. Whenever we've been we hire someone, we're like, 
I don't know, there's just the writing wasn't quite right. It, it almost always pans out that it turns out that they're not the right fit for the company, even if their work was great, but they're just unable to really convince people and persuade people based on their sort of a, a missing bit of, it's not magic, but I'll call it that in the writing where, or, you know, where, where you read something, go, oh, this is, this is great. I'd love to dig a little deeper on the example you gave with the design finalists. Let's say you're hiring for a position, you have a handful of folks, you've narrowed it down to, and uh, you're paying, you're going to pay each of them $1,500 for a one week project. Do you assign them a project, give them a range of projects? I'd love a little bit more in terms of specifics. And then when you ask them, like, why did you do what you did, what what you ended up doing, do you provide them with guidelines for how to answer that or you, you keep it totally open-ended I'd, I'd love for you just to walk us through a hypothetical or real example of what the project could look like and how it unfolds from there yeah and the first, first of all the reason why we do that is because you basically can't trust anyone's design work in the past and the reason why is because a lot of people work with other people and you don't really really know what they did like you'll, you'll, we'll get, we'll get, you know, resumes. Like I, I, I did Nike.com. It's like, no, you didn't. Like you worked, you know, you worked on Nike.com. I can't tell what you did exactly. Um, and so you'll see a lot of that, or you'll see people share screenshots with you of things. And you're like, you know, I just don't know the process that went into that. So it's hard for me to, to judge it. And it's not that I don't think the work's good or bad. It's none of that. It's like, I just don't know what I'm evaluating here. So the, the idea is that, um, once we get down to the five finalists, after looking at work and looking at writing and the whole thing, we feel like these five people could be great fits for this per- particular position. We give them all the same assignment. And the assignment, is, sometimes there's actually, a, a, there, sometimes there is a choice, like two or three different assignments. But for the most part, historically, it's been one. Lately, we've been doing a few, but it's been one. Um, where everybody who's, who's applying for this job does the same project. Um, everyone gets a week to do it. They have to figure out how to fit that in with the rest of their, their, most people have jobs already. So they maybe have to work at night or whenever they do it. Um, and we're, we're, you know, I'm well aware of the fact that they don't have a lot of time, so I'm not expecting perfection. This is part of the reason why I look at the writing and the explanation of the work, because I recognize that, you know, who knows, maybe you have a full-time job, maybe you have kids at home, maybe you don't, maybe whatever it is, whatever it is, maybe you only have an hour a day to do this on the side and you're already tired. I get all of that. So I'm more interested in the, in, you know, how you approach the project and how you describe what you did and why you did it. Um, so anyway, they would do, for example, we take a screen from Basecamp and say, um, so to get, get really specific about this, like, uh, here's the, here's the way you add people to a Basecamp project. Um, what would you do to make this better? Now you have no data. You're not talking to anybody about it. I just want to know what you would do. Like, what would, what would you do? Because a lot of the work at Basecamp is all based on what would you do? We don't, we don't do a lot of user testing um, we don't do, we do use customer interviews and stuff, but we don't get into a testing lab. We don't watch people use our product. We don't do any of that. So, and we don't really look that much at, at like usage data to really determine what we're going to do. So a lot of this is, is about gut and feel and, and what would you do? What's wrong with the screen in your opinion? I'm really interested in people's opinions. I want people to have a point of view when I hire them. Um, I don't want people to say, well, I need this data and that data to make decisions. I go, yeah, yeah, I, I get all that. But what would you do? I want to know what you, I'm hiring you. What would you do? So anyway, so they do the work and then um, they they uh, present it. And I say, I say, present it any way you want. So there are no guidelines. Um, I, I just say, present it any way you want. But what I, I guess the one guideline is like, I want to understand why you did what you did. 
So some people present this work as like an elaborate website with a bunch of different screens. Some people present it as a PDF, a static PDF. Some people write something up and sort of tell a linear story with screenshots interspersed. There's a variety of different ways people do it. But ultimately, I'm looking at the explanation of the work and the, and the, and the sort of the, the, the thought behind the ideas that are presented. That's what I'm most curious about. It's not necessarily whether or not the work is great because you're already a finalist, so I already know that you're capable of designing things well. What I wanna make sure I understand is, is where the ideas are coming from, how they're filtering through your head, how they're filtering through your fingers into the design itself, um, and, and why you did what you did, and can you defend it? One of the things is, even when I disagree, even when I, I should say, even when I agree with the, the, the solution, I'm, I'm always gonna push back on it um, in these kind of situations because I wanna see how people take criticism as well. That's a big part of this, which is like constructive criticism and critique I want to see that. One of the things we don't do and we don't believe in at all are like these riddles and this bullshit test <laughs> crap, right? It's not the, the, it's real, the, the McKinsey, how many golf balls can you fit in a 747 type stuff? I'm interested. Because, yeah, yeah. The, all, like everything we try to do at, at Basecamp is about real stuff. So, like, this is actually a real project that we would take on. And it's not bullshit and it's real. So, that's you know, riddles and stuff. Forget it. So, real work. I want to see how you explain it, what you do with it, why you did what you did with it. And then I'm going to push back on it and see how you respond on it or respond with it. And that says a lot. Um, one of the designers we hired recently um, for iOS, um, Tara uh, Mann is her name. And, and one of the things I was really impressed with when she delivered her project and we started talking about it was that when we were going through it, she goes, you know, I don't even know if I like what I did here. And I loved that because that shows, first of all, a real sense of confidence in like talking to an employer and going, I don't even know if I liked what I did here. Like that's most people are like, this is the best thing in the world. This isn't the best idea ever. Like this is, but she's like, you know, I, I think I like it, but I'm not totally sure. And I like that. We dug into that. And then we got into like why she didn't think it was great. And that was just a very real conversation. That I felt like I could work with someone like this. Absolutely. Because they're, they don't think that everything they do is going to be great. And they're, they're self-aware enough to recognize that. And we can talk it through and figure it out. And that was, that was a great thing. So, um, there could have been, for example, in this case, there weren't, but there could have been five designers who were better than her visually anyway. I still would have gone with her because of her sort of her approach to the work and her honesty about it. That's what I'm looking for when I talk to somebody who I'm about to hire. What would be an example of pushing back? Let's just create a hypothetical or a real example. Yeah. And then what would uh, trip the wire as far as red flags go or – uh, positive indicators. Sure. So, um, I'm, I can't really, it's hard to describe that particular project because it, it, we'd all have to be looking at it to, to point out that yeah, it could be anything. I'm just wondering, yeah, I mean, in, in other words, this pushback, like, wow, I think this really sucks. What say oh, yeah, you? Not like that. Or, or yeah. is it like, Hmm, not sure how I feel about that. Or is it, you know, something else? Yeah, it's more, it's more the, obviously the latter. I, I don't ever say anything sucks. Um, I, <laughs> I was yeah. using that just because of the rejection. I get it. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a, yeah, right. The, the, the five, five thing too. No, it's, it's more, um, you know, I'm not sure that, that I see why, you know, you went down this road or, um, doesn't this seem like a lot of steps or, uh, you know, um, this, why, you know, this word, uh, save, maybe it should be preview. Like, why is it safe? Like I kind of usually pushbacks with questions. Like I, I don't understand this or help me understand this. And that's kind of the, the real one I like to use. It just like help. I don't, I'm not sure I get this. Can you help me understand this? Um, but sometimes the, the red flags are, are very, they're very clear. 
it, it's they, people hunch down into a defensive posture and, and fight for their idea, which is fine. It's good to do that sometimes, but not when it's like, help me understand why, you know, why you went this direction. It's like, Oh, I, you know, I went this direction because I felt like it was the best possible thing. Like there's some sort of when, when people get rushed about things, I actually like when someone takes a pause and goes, Hmm, let me think about that. Well, here's what I went through to get to here. Like the reason I use the word save was because, uh, you know, this, this reason or that reason, or the reason I called it a draft and not a preview is because of this and that I'm more interested in people retracing their steps than, than just sort of purely explaining their, the, the outcome. Um, that's not really, that that's kind of a deeper thing, but you'll see people in, in design reviews who get very defensive very quickly and they, 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 you can tell that they're not listening anymore. They're just, um, they're telling you what they want you to listen to instead of listening to what you have to say. That's very obvious in design reviews. When that comes up, it's, it's very clear. So it's, it's that, but I just fundamentally, I'm looking for, uh, a, a deep degree of introspection in, in the work and an understanding of how they ended up there. It's kind of like, if you think about, uh, back in, you know, school where you, your teacher would ask you to show the work when you did a math problem. Um, th what they're basically looking for is they're looking to see if you understand how you came out with the answer versus like, did you somehow memorize this or guess? It's like, or was it lucky? Or did you actually understand how you arrived there? It's kind of the same thing. I want people to show their work basically. And that doesn't mean showing like all the drafts of the design work necessarily. It's not like going through previous versions. It's again, coming down to explaining the, the path that they took to land where they landed. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yep. And this, this is also uh, with the understanding that uh, very different company from Basecamp, but uh, I've spent a lot of time with Matt Mullenweg of mm -hmm. Automatic, which runs WordPress.com among other things. And he values written communication exceptionally highly. Uh, and, and they do all their interviews via text and uh, also have every, at least for a long period up until maybe I want to say at least 50 or hundred employees had uh, every prospective employee knew they would have to spend. And I don't know if this is part of the vetting process or post hiring a week or two handling customer service. Yeah. Uh, and which also and not to say it's perfect for every company, certainly, uh, but also tells you a lot more than just how they handle <laughs> a, a user error yeah. in a customer service situation, right? If, if they refuse to do that, what does that tell you, right? If well, they do it poorly, what does it tell you? There's a lot more than just the words that come out of them. Yeah. And, you know, actually at, at our company, everybody works customer service also. So, um, no matter what position you're in, every, every single person rotates one day through customer service every number of days. Like we have 54 employees in the company, about 15 or 16 on customer support. So about 30 of us, every 30 days we rotate through and do one day of customer service. And that's another reason why it's important for you to be able to write is because um, on that one day a month or one day every 40 days or whatever, uh, you are uh, on the front lines speaking with customers and, and uh, empathizing with them understanding what, what, what they're dealing with, helping them understand what they don't understand, helping us understand what we don't understand, all of that stuff, which is what customer services are really all about. Of course, it's also about like troubleshooting and solving immediate problems. But a lot of it too is, is, is getting 
to the real, like what, what are they really asking for and why, uh, and what are we doing wrong and what were our blind spots It's all that stuff. And a lot of that comes down to having a conversation with the customer and all of our customer services done via, via email or, 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 or Twitter or, or chat or something. So we don't have a phone, although we do do some phone support, but we don't have a phone number that you can call in, for example. So it's all written. So we want to make sure that if we're going to put someone in front of customers, they know how to write as well. So that, that is a big part of it too. I, I didn't know that automatic did that as part of their, part of their um, hiring process, but I, I, I love the idea. Yeah, it's uh, such a key, such a key skill for so many reasons. For people who want to become better writers, better communicators, are there any books, resources, exercises that you would recommend? There is one of my favorite books is called Revising Prose, and the cover is horrible. It's like a <laughs> that's how you can spot it. <laughs> yes, it's like a CD-ROM and a pencil or something. It's like what? I don't even understand how that happened. Maybe they've revised it since, but I, I think it's that bad still. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's so horrible. Anyway, revising prose. Thank God! Thank God the title is so catchy. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> right. But what's cool about it is that, um, and I forget the author. And you, you know, you can look it up and put it in the notes, but. Um, is that he dissects things one sentence at a time and his, his ability to, to take a sentence and cut it up and explain it and simplify it. Uh, I think it's a wonderful skill and a great, great book. Uh, so it's not really even about writing paragraphs or stories or how to organize and outline stuff. It's like a sentence at a time and figuring out how to structure things. Love it. Great book. And it's actually, you know, there's this class I've talked about before. I've written a blog post about this. This class that I'd want to teach. If I ever taught a college class, uh, I think I think one of the the biggest disservices that 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 college does actually is, is that it doesn't teach people to write well. Um, in fact, it teaches a lot of people, especially in MBA programs, to write very poorly. Uh, <laughs> so true. It's so true. And a lot of it's based on length, like write a ten page thing, and you know, or, or whatever. So the class I've always wanted to teach, if I was ever to teach, would be a, a writing class. You, I don't care what the subject is. doesn't matter. Pick a subject. I want you to write like a, a five-page version of that article. I want you to write a one-page version of it. I want you to write a five-paragraph version, a five-sentence version, and a one-sentence version. Um, that's the assignment. And we would do that over and over and over and over with different topics I don't care the topic. It doesn't matter. I just want you to be able to write at different levels of resolution and continue to clarify it as you cut things out to the point where you can write it in one sentence. And of course, there'll be more detail in the, in the, in the five paragraph version. Right, maybe it was three pages, one page, three paragraphs, one sentence, whatever it is. But this, this idea of going from writing the long piece and then cutting it down and editing, editing is something that's rarely taught and really getting, trying to hone in on what it is and realize and like the, the big idea here is that you can realize that so much of the stuff that you put in the five page version just doesn't really matter that much. And actually, the one page version is probably better. And maybe the, the three paragraph version is much better than the one page version. And you, there's probably a point where you, you, you begin to lose it, but it's still the great exercise. So I, I'd love to see that kind of writing instruction versus length, which sent like long, long things and then not actually editing. This is the other thing that, that, um, blows me away about education. Um, it's funny. I was talking to my, my sons in, in preschool and I was talking to the, the head of the school about, about this. Um, and the thing that's not taught in schools is iteration and iteration is everything outside of school. 
um, where you you do something and then like you 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 know launch it or ship it or whatever and then you're on to making a better version of that thing pretty quickly. In school, we would always do something and sort of hand it in, and that assignment would be done. And then you go on and do another assignment. You never get to revisit things. Uh, in, in the in the professional world, you're revisiting things all the time. And um, I would love to see you know you hand something in this like this one page to to to, to you know. Or five page to one page to five paragraphs, whatever. That's a version of a short term version of like revisioning in a sense. Perhaps the better way of doing that would be you first hand in the five page version, you get it back with notes, then you're required to write the one page version of that. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that being able to revisit something that you did and make it better and hand it in and revise it again and hand it in and revise it again um, is something that you don't see often. Sometimes you see that with drafts in a, in a document, but it's not really quite the same as being able to come back to the idea. So for example, if you're doing something in school and you're building something or you're doing a science project or whatever, and you, you do it and you're done, you present it and it's over, like maybe a month later, you're gonna have a better idea for something that you did. And you go, I wanna do that again. But school doesn't give you a chance to do anything again, really, unless you're like, unless you're stupid and you're held back and they say, you can't go for further. You know, of course, not stupid, that's the wrong word. But like the school's like, you're, you know, you, you, didn't, you didn't hit the criteria, so we're gonna let you do it again. Like in some ways, of course, there's a lot of other reasons why this probably isn't necessarily a good thing for people, for, for kids. Um, but uh, to get a chance to do it all over again, maybe you see it better the second time. Um, so anyway, I, I would love to see revision and iteration built into education. And this sort of writing assignment is sort of a way to get at that. And I pulled up this book and it, the cover is truly awful. Uh <laughs> Like, what is the CD even doing there uh, on top? Like, how did that happen? Is yeah. it like just clip art or something? Like, I don't even know how that yeah. happened. I'd love to get to the bottom of that. But Revising Prose, Richard A. Lanham. Does that sound right? I think so, yeah. It's got to be because the cover is this pen That's and a CD on top of a page with a bunch of markups on it. Richard yeah. A. Lanham. Another book that I found very helpful. I haven't read it in a very long time, but it's called Simple and Direct. should be fairly easy to write. I don't remember the name of the author and uh i had the i had the great good fortune maybe too many too many modifiers on that but now that i'm thinking about writing the great good helpful fortune of taking a class in college i was at princeton undergrad with john mcphee who's a senior writer at the new yorker so won a pulitzer or two at this point and the course was called The Literature of Fact. It was about nonfiction writing, creative nonfiction, uh, which doesn't mean making up 50%. It means taking fact and weaving it into a narrative, which John McPhee is exceptionally good at. And actually, one book that I think you would really enjoy is called Draft Number 4, which is about his writing process. I think you'd be fascinated by it from, okay. from a structural standpoint. Uh, really fascinating and it gets into the weeds which is not for everybody but i think <laughs> i think you'd appreciate it and uh i remember the first time it was a the first time we had our writing assignments returned to us so every week we had a seminar a which was about 12 students or so we had to apply to get in a writing assignment and then a one-on-one -on -one session with McPhee to go over the writing assignment that he had already marked up and given to us. And I remember when he handed back the first writing assignment, <laughs> uh, man, to all these students. And before he handed them out, he said, look, he didn't say look, cause that's not what he would say, but he said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, I want you to know that you're all good writers. You can all write. So I don't want you to be intimidated by what I'm about to hand back. And so he gave us back. You just saw, saw like, 
student by student, the, their faces drop and I got mine back and there was more red ink on the page than black ink that I typed out. It really yeah. looked like there was more red ink and it became so clear how fuzzy so much of my thinking was, how many unnecessary words there were, how much gristle and fat there was in between the actual meat that was necessary on the page. And the reason I bring up this, this, this story is that over the course of the next few weeks, as we were learning more, practicing more, and honing the sharpness of our writing, getting progressively less red ink, ideally, my grades in all of my other classes went up. And mm -hmm. there was a very clear, super clear correlation between cleaning up my thinking and everything else running more smoothly. It was really, mm -hmm. it could not have been more obvious. And uh, such a such an incredibly valuable skill. It is, you know, something that I would also encourage people to do is to read Tom Petty lyrics. Um, it sounds weird, <laughs> <laughs> but if you read Tom Tom Petty has such a wonderful efficiency in his storytelling and his lyrics and um every word really counts and there's no filler it's and he paints these really broad pictures with four or five words per per phrase and really truly is i thought one of the best i mean one of the best songwriters of course but really a great just a great writer in general when you read the lyrics so i would look at look at that and go look at the pictures he can paint and the emotions he can evoke and the um the story he can tell with very few words, he's extremely economical with his with his with his language or was, and um, it's a great thing to read. So just go like look at some of his albums. Go look go look up the lyrics online, and and don't even listen to the songs, but just read them, and you go, I, I see where he's going with this. And it, it's it's I always enjoy doing that from time to time. He's just such a he was so good at that. I will have to check that out. Elmore Leonard yeah. also another fantastic one for people to look up, and it makes me think you were talking about the. Uh, the one page, three or five paragraph, three paragraph, one paragraph, one line. It makes me think of the the Hemingway story in one line, which I'm sure I'm going to get slightly wrong, but it was something oh, right. The uh, uh, used baby shoes never worn, or uh, I fucked it up. Yeah, uh, baby <laughs> baby shoes for sale, baby shoes for sale, comma never worn. Right, uh, the sort of five or six word story. Uh, it's, it's a va really valuable exercise. Uh, and, totally. and it's, it's not just for academic purposes, as you pointed no. out, translates to everything. No doubt. Uh, vintage watches. Oh my God. <laughs> Here we go. Tell me about, tell me about vi vintage watches. I'm into, I'm into that. Um, I'm into vintage watches. Uh, let's see why. Well, first of all, I'm into watches. Um, I'm into a lot of things that, um, seem like there could only be one way to do it, but there turns out there's a lot of ways. So for example, I love, uh, chair, des like designing chairs. I don't design them myself, but I love looking at chairs, which are, are, are very simple things. It's like, you know, you sit on them and that's what they do. And you're like, well, there can only be a few ways to do a chair, but it turns out there's so many different ways to do a chair. It's really interesting. And watches are the same thing. Vintage do, you have, do you have any favorite chairs just as a side note? Uh, I, I like a lot of, uh, stuff that Jean, uh, I'm, his name is French, so I'll probably get it wrong, but Jean, Jean Prové are, uh, if I'm getting that right. Um, I love his designs, his styles. Um, there's a bunch of others. I'll, maybe I'll send you an email afterwards to some of my favorite chairs. Perhaps I'll send you some links. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but, um, I, uh, so watches are similar in that like a watch basically like, look, it's there to tell the time. Some watches can do more than others, but basically it's there to tell the time and like, okay, there's. 
you've got to, especially if you look at analog watches, which is why one of the reasons I like vintage stuff is it's like, you know, a couple hands, three hands maybe, or two hands. And, but there's so many different designs and so many different styles and so many different elements and so many different approaches to it that there's an endless amount of, of curiosity in it for me. Um, and plus the cool thing about mechanical watches, uh, is that, um, they're such a, it's a combination of all the things I like. So it's design, it's engineering, it's materials, it's, it's like uh, patina and like seeing age on things. I love things that age well. Um, it's, it's art. Um, it's science. Like if you, if you crack open one of these watches and look at the movement, like there's some serious engineering going on in there and some science, material science and some really fascinating stuff. And like the idea that, that mankind can capture time and tell it this way using springs and gears. It's kind of an amazing thing and be that accurate. So I've always sort of, I haven't always been into them, but my dad was into them still, maybe still is. I, I don't know if he collects stuff anymore, but he used to when I was younger and I got into them. Um, and the vintage thing, I'm actually kind of into vintage and modern these days, but more so I found vintage interest more interesting because there's more character in, in, in the objects because they have time on them. They actually have, you know, age on them. And that's kind of cool to see how things age. And that's one of the reasons why, um, like I like a lot of natural materials in general. Now we're like, I'm branching into architecture discussion here, but I like brick. Uh, I like wood. I like things that, that pick up age over time versus like, um, a lot of modern materials, I feel like uh, they don't age very well. They look great when you do the photo shoot right after it's built, and then they just age poorly, and they show their age in a way that's not flattering. But in fact, it, it takes it detracts from from the quality of the object. So, it's cool to see. The other thing is, I'll say about vintage watches is that it's really cool to be able to look down on your wrist and go, "This thing I have in my wrist um, has been working for 50 years, and if someone looks after it five more times over the next 50 years." Or next hundred years, it'll still work. There's basically nothing that is being created today where that is true anymore, except really watches, mechanical watches. Most other things these days are disposable. And so it's kind of a great reminder that you can actually build things that last and you can look down your wrist and go someone else 50 years ago was looking down at their wrist, seeing the exact same thing and it worked just as well. And 50 years from now, my kid can look down on his wrist or her wrist and see the same thing I looked at tell the same amount of time and it's going to work as well. And I, I just kind of love that idea. So anyway, that's sort of why I'm into it. So a few things. The first is at some point I need to introduce you to, uh, Peter Atia MD, who's a close friend of mine and a, an extreme watch nerd. Okay. Uh, good. I think you guys would have a lot to talk about. If you could only pick, and I have no idea how many watches you have, you don't have to d sure. divulge that, but if you could only choose one to three watches to keep, do any, yeah. do any come to mind where you're like, yep, these are definitely on the list. Yes. So, uh, I have a, uh, it's called a Rolex Milgauss six, five, four, one is the model number, what they would call the reference number in the watch world. It's from 1958. And I just think it's the coolest fucking thing ever. So I just love the way it looks. <laughs> it's so cool looking. It, it, it's, it's awesome. So anyway, Rolex Milgauss six, five, four, one from 1958. Um, that's, that's definitely one keeper. Um, I have, uh, like an old Patek Philippe, uh, I'm blanking on the reference right now. Um, it's, it, it was, it was built for, um, similar to this Milgauss that I was talking about, by the way, Milgauss means 1000 Gauss. So it was a, it was a, it was a watch built for scientists who worked in high magnetic environments and, uh, watches, watches typically vintage ones, especially now modern ones were a little bit different, but 
um, they don't work well in magnetic environments because the the spring that's inside them, once it's magnetized, it can't tell time properly anymore, basically. So so these watches were built for for scientists to be amagnetic or anti-magnetic. And so the Milgauss was one of them, and then and then Patek made one. God, I can't believe I can't remember the reference right now. Anyway, you, you can I'll send, send it, you can send it with your links to the chairs. I'll send it to you. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> it's also an an anti-magnetic watch, um, and it was sort of their answer to the Milgauss. So it's it's funny that like the two things I, I come to mind immediately are like watches for scientists, which you know it's just the, it's, what a cool niche, um, you know, to to makes makes a product for scientists in the 50s like how cool like kind of if you can imagine scientists in the 50s with their white coats and like learning all sorts of new things about physics in the world and biology uh and all sorts of really cool stuff happened back then um that those are the two watches that immediately come to mind that that i really really dig um there, there's another one um actually which is a uh, i'm gonna get this name wrong too so i'm just gonna call it a, a it's it, it's Jager Lacolte or Jager Lacolte or something like that. I can never, I never exactly know what it is. Um, anyway, uh, it's called the Polaris from 1968. Um, it's a dive watch built for, for divers and it has an alarm on it. Um, a mechanical alarm, which is really cool and really unique and, and, and rare, especially at the time, which I think is really beautiful and just a really neat complication for a mechanical watch to have an alarm on it. Um, so you could say like, for example, at five o'clock, I want this thing to buzz very loudly. So I would know that it's five o'clock, which of course is so silly and easy to do with an iPhone or any digital thing. But mechanically it's actually, it was quite a challenge and very few watches have ever had a mechanical alarm. I also like the way it looks. So anyway, there's some of that stuff that I'm into. There's other bunch of other things. Um, but those are the kind of the three that initially come to mind as ones that I'm, I'm really into. If, if you had to give a Ted talk on obsessions and it couldn't be, Related to your company, couldn't be related to watches. This has, these are personal obsessions. Yeah. What what might you talk about that that a lot of people wouldn't know about? Mm, well, I don't know if I'd be able to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay. Sean, I'm imagining all of the yeah. the uh, unacceptable, well, unacceptable, socially awkward sexual fetishes that you wouldn't be able to talk about on the TED stage, but. Continue. I, I guess I didn't finish the sentence. I said maybe I wouldn't be able to talk about it with authority, let's say. So let's say um, one of the things that I'm really into, strangely, is is prairie restoration. Okay, so stand back here for a second. Let me, let me fill you in on this. So um, I maybe 10 years ago, I bought a, a farm up in uh, rural Wisconsin, about three hours from Chicago where I live. It's like 50 miles west of Madison, Wisconsin, for those who kind of know the geography. And it's a uh, very rural land. It's kind of hilly. It's very beautiful. I bought it and um, I'd always wanted some land. I, I love nature. I love just getting out and walking in nature. It's just to me the most refreshing thing you could ever do. Um, and uh, so I bought this land and I looked at it and I thought it was just beautiful and amazing. And it was, but I learned like a couple of years in that it was full of weeds and invasive species and like not really the way it should be. Uh, or should or was, but modern farming and, and, and the fact the land's been tilled a bunch of times and there's invasive species and stuff, it sort of took over the land. So I got on this kick to, to, to find a prairie restoration specialist, which I learned that there's this thing called prairie restoration where you could sort of bring the land back to the way it was, to prairie in this particular part of the country. And that prairie is, is in fact the, um, the most endangered natural habitat in the United States. There's only like something like 
a thousand or something acres left of it in the entire United States. So people talk about old growth forests being gone and stuff. There's actually more old growth forests in the United States than there's prairie. Prairie is like gone basically. But I, I visited some actual prairies that have been restored and also some some that are still around. And, and Endangered due to agriculture, I assume? Or yeah, something. basically farming. Yeah, like uh, people, you know, all the land has been tilled basically for farmland. Um, and um, and I visited some of these prairies and they just are the most beautiful thing. Uh, hundreds of species of plants and flowers and, 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 sh- and shrubs and insects and birds. And it's just these, this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And so I have this land, it's, it's a, quite a bit of acreage and I, and I started hiring, hired this guy to, to help me restore it. We've been doing it for seven, eight years now or something, bringing the land back to the way it was like five acres at a time. Um, and planting native species and, and, uh, and getting rid of all the invasives and also doing the same thing. There's some forests on the, on the property and I'm doing Oak Savannah restoration. So, uh, a lot of invasive trees have grown up, uh, around these big, huge, beautiful Oak trees that are hundreds of years old, but they've been crowded by these other trees. So we're getting rid of some of the other trees and letting the Oaks be the way they were and then returning the forest floor to the way it was. And it's just such a, incredibly rewarding, but super slow process. It takes like, you seed these prairies. First of all, you have to like kind of get rid of everything that's there and then weeds pop up and you have to get rid of everything that's there because there's what's called a seed bank in the soil. So the seed bank is basically hundreds of years worth of seeds that have just been waiting to sprout. And so you have to kind of like, you clear out all the living stuff and then like there's all these seeds that are then now exposed in sunlight and then they sprout. And you have to basically just kind of nuke it all for a while until there's nothing basically left in the soil. Um, or invasive species left in the soil. And then you can go and get native species by actually doing seed uh, gathering. You can gather seeds at certain prairies or you can buy seeds, native seeds. You can also find individual prairie plants in what's called prairie remnants, which are like small vestiges of old prairies that might still be on your property and harvest the seeds from those. So it's this really, really slow, amazing thing. Then you seed it and then it might take five or six years for a prairie to grow because Prairie plants typically invest all their energy in the first few years in the, in the roots. So you don't see anything growing. It's really frustrating. It looks like shit for a long time. And all of a sudden, <laughs> a few years in, it starts to come up. And then it's just so rewarding and so wonderful to walk through. And um, so that's something that I'm really into in a deep way. And uh, probably most people don't know about it in general. I didn't know about it until a few years ago, but I love it so much. And I'm kind of on this crusade now to, to like this anti-corn crusade. You know, I, I want to basically, whenever land comes up next to my land, I want to buy it because most of it's corn. And uh, corn is sort of at the root of a lot of different problems. Uh, and I just want to like get rid of the corn and return the land to the way it was and sort of create this patchwork of land and then eventually put it in some sort of trust so it can never be touched and there can always be these these beautiful tracts of land forever. Uh, of course it'd have to be maintained and that would have to be how the trust would have to be able to figure that out. Maybe part of it is farmed to, to fund that. But anyway, that's something that I would probably love to talk about. Although I don't know enough about it to give a Ted talk, but I could certainly talk someone's ear off for about an hour on all the little details that I've learned. What a fantastic project. It, it's such a fun thing. Man. It's, it's so sa- cool. It sounds therapeutic too, oh. in, in, in the sense that having to embrace slowness in at least one compartment of your life seems to be a nice counterbalance to potentially external or internal drives, not necessarily in you, but in a lot of people, certainly myself included at times to do bigger things faster. Right. 
No doubt. And the other thing about that I'll say is that you can't even speed this process up if you wanted to. And that's what's so awesome about it. And by the way, the process is multi-layered and multi-tiered. And probably by this point, you're like, I should never have asked him this question. (laughs) But anyway, uh, real quick, um, what's cool about it too is not only do the plants, like new plants come up and, and all sorts of species bloom, but you start to see new insects. And new insects come a few years later, and they 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 somehow you're like, where'd they come from? And like they're still out there, but they find it, and they and they, and they're 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 wired to proliferate in these environments. And then you see new birds and new bird species. There's like a hundred and something bird species now on my property when originally there weren't. There was like forty, and you're like, where'd they come from? And they just come from. They find it somehow, and they come in. And then like the other thing I've been learning is if you build a pond, for example, I don't have any pond, but I have a river. But if there's a pond, if you just fill a pond with water. Within a few years, you will have fish. And you're like, what? How does that happen? Like, how, how could that possibly be? And it turns out, like, fish are, you know, a bird might be eating a fish and drop it before it's dead and it pops in the, into there. And that could have been a pregnant fish. And before you know it, like, the whole thing is like life, it's just waiting. First of all, it's not waiting, it's everywhere. But like, if you restore a property, you restore some, some, some land and give it some space and let it do what it does, nature is so, so resilient and just wants to thrive. And it's so cool to watch it happen on its own schedule and say, and nature is in never, it's never in a hurry. That's the thing that I love so much about it is that it's never in a hurry, but it accomplishes everything. And that's a quote that I read somewhere and I don't know where I read it, who said it, but I love it and I always think about it, which is that it'll take its time and it'll get whatever it needs to get done, done. And however long it takes, it takes, um, which is such an analog or such an opposite, not an analog, an opposite to humanity, which is always rushing, which is actually typically destroying, um, and which is getting faster and faster and faster. And I, I don't think it's you know the right path, but it is what it is. Thank you for sharing. I, yeah. I love that. It also makes me think about how much of life is setting the conditions for good things to happen, not trying to force good things. And, and uh, to give another example that uh, the kind of biohacker slash nutrition crowd might be interested in is the contrast between probiotics where you're say swallowing bacteria you hope will take root in your gut among other things, right? Which often does not work very well. Uh, can contrasted with prebiotics where you're consuming different types of foodstuffs could be certain types of fiber, baobab root, for instance, which is effectively this is very simplified, but restoring the soil conditions in your gut so that the types of bacteria you want to grow naturally begin to take root and grow. Mm-hmm. And you can't just take a handful of seeds and like drive them into the ground, expecting them to pop out overnight. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. And so thinking about setting the conditions is something I've been thinking a lot about is to setting the conditions for positive emergent properties. And then secondly, you know, I was just thinking about this today because I was watching a documentary last night where this mother was giving her son advice. And she said, I just want you to learn patience. You need to learn patience. And you, I've been thinking, I've thought over the years a lot about this word and whether I need more or less patience. And I, I was thinking today that it's, it, maybe it's unproductive to think of it in terms of more or less patience, but rather in terms of developing the ability to discern between the things that can and should be accelerated and the things that can't be accelerated. And if you attempt to accelerate them, will just do more damage. 
related to that, I mean, I love this idea that, that you're bringing up about about probiotics versus um, prebiotics and creating the conditions for growth or creating the conditions for desired outcomes or whatever. And, and I'm going to tie it all back. I mean, we're tying this like let me tie like prairie restoration to business building, which is um, and 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 gut building basically, and and you know that gut health and the whole thing, which is that. Part of it too is is not only creating the conditions for things to thrive, but also not creating conditions for certain things to thrive. So um, something, for example, our business is self-funded. Yeah, we, we did take money from Bezos in 2006, but that was a personal founder shares. None of that money ever went to our business. David and I took some money off the table. So we've been 100% bootstrapped and funded by customers ever since day one, which means we've created a situation where we don't have to answer to anybody. We don't have to be on anyone else's time scale. Um, I don't have to build something that I know is going to have to be sold in seven years because a fund is coming due and like they need their money out of it. Or I also don't have to build something that grows at a certain rate because, you know, you need to grow at a certain rate for a certain return. We don't care about returns. Our, the conditions we've set are not to uh, have returns thrive and, 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 you know, generate returns for others. But actually what we've tried to set up is profit conditions for profitability and for sustainability because – as long as we make more money than we spend, we can exist for as long as we want. There's no external um, pressures, artificial pressures that we've set up or conditions that we've created that will force us to make a decision about when we have to sell the business at some point. So it, it's not only about creating conditions for thriving. It's about, like, in fact, putting up barriers for certain things not to happen. And I've been thinking a lot personally about putting a lot of I've been putting a lot of energy into making sure certain things don't happen versus putting energy in to make sure certain things do happen. And uh, I think if you can prevent a lot of things from happening by thinking about what you don't want, you do create the conditions then for other things to come in, which are the things that you actually do want. So um, I, I think there's a lot of similarities here between nature and business and, and you know gut health is nature as well, of course, and, and conditions and letting things sort of thrive and preventing other things from happening. I mean, it's cool, like for example, we have, hundreds uh, over 100 species of birds now on the property we didn't put bird seed out like you know you don't put bird seed out what you do is you put seed out that grows in the ground that then creates the conditions where actually it grows seed so it does actually grow bird seed right it grows bird seed it just takes five years and then birds find it and then like everything just happens the way it naturally should at the right pace and the right scale and it's just very rewarding to, to see that happening and i think it does color your your impression of other things and sort of shows you in many ways how sort of silly speed is in a lot of other things where it's injected unnecessarily and in, in sort of the damage that it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's a topic we could go on and on with for, for hours, I'm sure. So maybe we should do that at some point, yeah, <laughs> but, <another time>. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, let me wrap up with just a, just a few more questions. And one, one of them I've asked you before, uh, and this will sound familiar and then I'll, I'll pause for a second and buy a little time. But if you could have a giant billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why, right? It could be a quote, could be a word, could be a question, could be anything, could be someone else's quote. Now I asked you this question in tribe of mentors and you gave, you said one of these quotes and you gave about 15 to 20, <laughs> maybe more 25 fantastic quotes. I mean, these are, these are excellent quotes, but right now in your life, it doesn't have to relate to anything in the external wider world. Uh, let me, let me read a few just to give people a taste and then uh, yeah. I'd love to know which one you would pick. Sure. 
right now in your life. But well, let me pick a few here. If you think you're too small to be effective, you've never been in the dark with a mosquito, Betty Reese. Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket, Eric Hoffer. Uh, this one has proven very popular. The fairest rules are those to which everyone would agree if they did not know how much power they would have, John Rawls. And I'll read... I'll read one more since we've mentioned him a few times. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Warren Buffett. Uh, where, where would you go at this point in your life with a message, a word, a quote, a question, anything on a gigantic billboard? Metaphorically, of course, getting a message out to millions or billions of people. Yeah. Um, well, I think it'd be fun just to say the word billboard on a billboard and just <laughs> pay for it, pay for it for a hundred years. And, and there it is. It's called billboard. Um, but that would be kind of fun, but also a gag. Um, I, I like that, that John Rawls quote so much, which is, uh, the fairest rules are the ones you would, I forget. Can you yeah, agree? Yeah, yeah. The fairest rules are those to which everyone would agree if they did not know how much power they would have. Yeah. I, that to me is at the root of so many things. Um, we've been dealing with a little bit of this in our, in our own business. Uh, it's a little bit slightly different, but just like information asymmetry and recognizing that everybody has the same information. So they look at things through different lenses. And it's very important to recognize the fact that you can't just come at something one way because you know it. If someone else doesn't know it, you can't assume that they knew that. And, you know, there's, it's the same sort of idea, which is, which is, um, uh, you, you, you almost you can't be upset when someone has a, a reaction to something when they just have a different set of information. And similarly, you know, um, uh, you, the rules are, are, you know, rules are based on like who has the power to make them. Basically, today, that's kind of how it is in almost everything. Um, and so it's a good reminder that um, r- rules basically are the fairest to those who make them, unfortunately, but they would be the fairest if no one knew who they applied to. And it's just a good reminder on a lot of different levels. It's one of my favorite quotes, and I think that's probably something I would put up on a billboard. It'd be hard to read at 70 miles an hour as you speed by it, which is why I still like billboard. But um, as a quote, I think it's the most meaningful, one of the most meaningful quotes and most important quotes to, to keep in mind, whatever it is that you do. Definitely. And I'll read, uh, I'll read one more just because – actually, I'll read two more of your quotes because <laughs> there are many to choose from. Uh, Here's one that applies certainly to a few things we've talked about in the conversation. Quote, not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. William Bruce Cameron. And then the next and last one I'll read is by Albert Schweitzer. In the hopes of reaching the moon, men fail to see the flowers that blossom at their feet. And yeah, I've got a story, but let's maybe for another time about that quote. Well, I can tell you now. Let's do it. Let's just get into it. Sure. So, um, I don't know, a number of years ago, I was invited to, to go to this, uh, John Maida invited me to go to this thing, um, at the, at the glass house, uh, in New Canaan, Connecticut, I think it is, um, the Philip Johnson glass house. And it was a, a, like a summit on simplicity. And there was, I think 10 or 15 people invited. And, um, uh, one of the people invited was, was this older man, Japanese man. I think he was in his eighties or close to it. Almost everyone else was much younger, much, much younger, 20s and 30s, 40s, maybe. Um, and like I said earlier, I love I love older people. So I sort of gravitated to him. He was really well dressed and just seemed interesting. And um, I noticed that he was um, whenever we were going. So the, the Philip Johnson Glass House, the whole campus, I think is about 50 acres. And there's maybe a dozen different buildings. And it's kind of a neat idea because Philip Johnson had this idea that it's actually one building. And the hallways are just outside. 
um, which is kind of a cool thought. Um, but really, it's like 12 different buildings. Like, for example, his, he has an office, which was a separate building, which doesn't have a bathroom, doesn't have plumbing, because he didn't need it because it's like it's still part of the house that has plumbing. I just have to walk outside to get there. Anyway, we were walking between these houses, and you have a 50-acre site, so there's quite a bit of distance between these buildings. And I noticed that this guy was always last in, in, in the line to walk. And I kind of s- sat back with him on, on one of the walks. And, and you know, I, but he was also like, it wasn't because he was old. That would be the first thing you would think that he's just older, so he's going to walk slower. But actually, he, he's like, no. And I could tell that he was physically able to walk as fast as everybody else. It wasn't that. He goes, no, everyone's just walking too fast, and they're missing things as they go. Um, he was, so he just kneeled down, and he, he looked he took like this square foot of, of ground. And, um, uh, and by the way, I'd noticed as he was walking, he was looking down as well. So he's walking slowly and looking down. And he, he just, he kind of took this square foot of, of, of land and like pointed out some flowers and some insects and some shapes and some stuff and says like, this is beautiful. People feel like they have to go all over the world to see something new. All they have to do is look down. Um, and if you walk slowly and look down, like there's a world under your feet all the time, an interesting world. And he goes, these people ahead of me, they're younger. Yeah, maybe they can walk a bit faster, but look at everything they're missing. Uh, and I just, that really just kind of totally smacked me in the face. I love this point. Like, yeah, they're going faster and they look like they're going somewhere, but look at everything they're missing along the way. And so uh, that uh, point about that other quote that you just brought up about you know, going to the moon, missing the flowers, like that's sort of a similar thing, which is, you know, especially today where everyone's rushing all over the place trying to get somewhere. And you're like, where are you actually going and what are you actually missing? And I, I thought that that, that moment, uh, this guy actually stopping and physically explaining that to me and looking down and pointing out some things was a really poignant thing and something I always have always remembered since then. What a lovely story. Yeah. He's a lovely man. I think he's still around. I'm sure he, from what I understand, he's, he's a Japanese um, garden expert. He has an amazing Japanese garden apparently in his backyard somewhere in Northern California. Uh, and he's also like a wine connoisseur and supposed to be a really fascinating guy. I never really caught up with him afterwards. I always meant to, and I, I missed that opportunity and I should probably figure out how to get in touch with him, but wonderful man, really interesting person. And, and I appreciate the lesson he, he taught me there. Well, if you track him down, let me know. Sounds like will. maybe the type of person <laughs> to have on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Someone who can really embrace the, the joy of missing out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Jomo. There the go. Jomo. Uh, Jason, well, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time today to, uh, to chat with me and share your stories with the world also. Well, thanks for having me. This is super fun. It's always fun to talk to you. And thanks for giving me so much time to do that. My pleasure. And is there is there anything else before we wrap up that you would like to ask of the audience, suggest to the audience, any closing comments of any type? No, I don't have any actually. I like answering questions, so I don't I don't have any proclamations or anything to to share. So I I don't. Um, if anyone wants to, to to get in touch, I think you, you'll have some of that stuff. So feel free to hit me up on Twitter or wherever. Oh, the other thing, actually, I will mention. Um, David and I, DHH and I, are doing this new uh, YouTube channel, which is kind of a something people have been asking for for a while. We're calling it Getting Real, and we're basically showing what our like kind of like you asked me, like, what's your day like? like what do you, people always like? What's your morning like? And what what, what do you do? I'm like, well, why don't I just show you? So um, we're doing these videos of actually walking through code samples, walking through design decisions, walking through design reviews and making them all public. 
So I think it's kind of a neat thing to, to, to check out if you're interested in sort of how we look at design and how we look at code and how we look at writing. One of the things I actually did was I wrote an article for Inc. recently, and I just recorded my screen and sort of talked out loud as I was writing it to sort of show like, here's how I write an article. I don't start with an outline. I start with the blank sheet. I got, kind of just write, and then I was sort of doing the director's cut as I went and editing as, editing live as I went, and it was sort of a fun sort of thing. Um, so I'm doing some of that, which would be kind of fun to follow if people are interested in that. Um, other than that, I don't have anything else to, to share. You've, you've written a lot and you have many popular articles, essays, blog posts, et cetera, online. If someone wanted to start with one or two, are there one or two that you could mention as a gateway drug into the mind of Jason? <laughs> well, speaking based on our conversation today, there was this the article I wrote about like, I've never had a goal. Uh, which would be a good thing to start reading, I think, that would, or a good place to read. I think probably it's on it's on our blog, Signal versus Noise, which is on Medium. If you search for my name on Google and say "never had a goal," you'll probably land on that article. <laughs> That'd probably be a good Jason Fried never had a goal. That'd probably be a good, <laughs> good one to read. And then um, uh, I also wrote one about not having expectations, which might be another interesting thing to to look at. Um, if there's any other ones, I'll, I'll uh, I mean, there, there are some other ones, but I'm not sure if they'd be good places to start, but those might be a good place to start. Great. And yeah. I'll, uh, I'll include chairs, maybe Prairie <laughs> Restoration, uh, the Polaris watch. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you all that stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll include all of that in the show notes. So for people listening, you'll be able to find all of that at tim.blog forward slash podcast and just search Jason and he'll pop right up and you can find all of these links and more as well as every other episode. And, uh, Jason, at some point, maybe we'll do a round two and it'd be lovely to see you in person sometime. Yeah. You're down. Where are you now? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. You're in Austin. Okay. Well, uh, at some point, yeah, we'll run into each other again, but I'd love to do it again. And if we want to do it in person, that'd be even better. So let me know. I'm around. Definitely. Yeah. You know, Austin, Texas, it's the third coast, as they say. (laughs) They said that about Chicago too. So I I think every, every other place is the third coast. coast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. Don't you need water to be a coast? I mean, at least in Chicago. Yeah, we have lakes. We do have some creeks. Uh, We're not entirely dry. There are rivers. Uh, So we do, we do have that. Uh, But uh, to be continued and, to everyone out there on the interwebs and beyond as always thank you for listening be safe or not and uh, pay attention to what's under your feet so until next time thanks for listening hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the, uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by wordpress.com. I love WordPress. I have used it for so many years. It's my go-to platform for blogging and creating websites. 
I use WordPress.com for everything, every day. My site, Tim.blog, is built on it. The websites for my books, including Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, it's all on WordPress.com. And the founder, Matt Mullenweg, one of my close friends, has appeared on this show many times. Just search Matt Mullenweg Tequila Ferris for quite an exciting time. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you can make a really big impact right out of the box when you build on WordPress.com. And you'll be in good company. It's used by The New Yorker, Jay-Z, Beyonce, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, and Time, just to name a handful. And one of my friends at Google, she'll remain nameless, has told me that WordPress.com offers the, quote, best out-of-the-box SEO imaginable, end quote. And it's one of the many reasons that nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress. You do not need experience or to hire someone. That's perhaps the best part. WordPress.com guides you through the entire experience. They have hundreds of designs and templates that you can use. And it's easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security, upgrades, hosting, any of that. They offer 24-7 support. And they're very, very responsive. If you have questions, they get right back to you. And this allows you to create the highest quality with the least amount of headache and friction. So if you're building a website, period, and my friends come to me and ask what I use, what I recommend they use, the answer is WordPress.com. So check it out. If you want to get started today, learn more with a 15% discount off any new plan. Go to WordPress.com forward slash Tim to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. So learn more. Take a look. WordPress.com forward slash Tim for 15% off a brand new website. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. And I'd heard about Peloton over and over again, but I ended up getting a Peloton bike and the whole system after I saw my buddy Kevin Rose. I've known him forever, some of you know, and he showed up at my gate at my house a while back and he looked fantastic. And uh, I asked him, I said, dude, you look great. What the hell have you been up to? Because he's always doing a weird diet or another, but it only lasts like a week or two. So he always regresses to the mean after like 75 beers. And he said, I've been doing Peloton five days a week. Now that caught my attention because Kevin does nothing five days a week. And you know I love you, Kevin. But it really piqued my curiosity. Ended up getting a system and it's become an integral part of my week. I love it and I really didn't expect to love it at all because I find cycling really boring usually. But Peloton is an indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes into your schedule or making it to a studio with some type of commute, etc. New classes are added every day, and this includes options led by elite New York City instructors in your own living room. You can even live stream studio classes taught by the world's best instructors or find your own favorite class on demand. And in fact, Kevin and I rarely do live classes, and you can compete with your friends, which is also fun. Kevin, I'm coming after you, but we usually just use classes on demand. I really like Matt Wilpers and his high-intensity training sessions that are shorter, like 20 minutes, and I think Kevin's favorite is Alex, and everyone seems to have their favorite instructor, or you can select by music, duration, and so on. Each Peloton bike includes a 22-inch HD touchscreen, performance tracking metrics. I think that, along with the real-time leaderboard, are the main reasons that this caught my attention 
when cycling never had caught my attention before. It's really pretty stunning what they've done with the user interface to keep your attention. The belt drive is quiet and it's smaller than you would expect, so it can fit in a living room or an office. I actually have it in a large closet, believe it or not, and it fits with no problem. So Peloton is offering all of you guys, listeners of the Tim Ferriss Show, a special offer, and it is actually special. Visit One Peloton, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N, OnePeloton.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, T-I-M, at checkout to receive $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Now, you might say, meh, accessories? Wait, I don't need fancy towels or whatever other supplemental bits and pieces. No, the shoes you need. You need the clip-in shoes, and those are in the accessory category. So this $100 off is a very legit $100 off. So if you want to get in your workouts, if you want a convenient and really entertaining way to do high-intensity interval training or anything else, or you just want to get a fantastic gift for someone, check out Peloton. OnePeloton.com and enter the code TIM. Again, that's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and enter the code TIM at checkout to receive $100 off any accessories, including the shoes that you will want to get. Check it out. OnePeloton.com, code TIM.